friends, it is time for the Weekend Sports Cars of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and who? TorontoMotorsports.com. Oh, but there's a fourth pillar. That's a guy by the name of Graham Goodwin, a man whose sexiness I always look to celebrate and present to the world. Uh, A man who, you know, uh, very rare to have a sports car reporter with a background in government and male stripping. So uh, don't know if you are are, are greased up and smelling like vanilla and chock full of glitter today, Mr. Goodwin, or if it's uh, just a normal day for you. But please tell us where you are and what you're doing and what the hell we're about to do to the folks who choose to listen to this tragedy travesty of a podcast it is outrageous that it's still on the air isn't it but uh, good evening everybody from uh, a f- very cold uk uh, into darkness here at the moment uh, in the evening on friday uh, i'm sitting my ass down doing this and then watching netflix uh, for the next um, week or so still in uh, self-isolation after coming back from dubai and what do i do when i get out of self-isolation well i go back to dubai Uh, because that's the kind of dude I am not for, as you quite rightly say, uh, that male stripping gig that I thought had left behind me, but, you know, needs will. Um, Somehow the fees are getting less, but in fairness, the the, the, the underwear has got a lot more space in it now for those dollars to be shoved in. So we're going to kick off. Uh, (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, yeah, uh, we got one or two things to kick off with before we have you choose which of the four categories to go with, Graham Goodwin. First of all, as we've been saying on the show for a couple weeks now, finally confirmed today, the FIA World Endurance Championship will not be opening its year in the delightful sunny state of Florida at the Sebring International Raceway. As part of Super Sebring, we now have less than Super Sebring, I guess, with just IMSA there. Also, returning to your former profession, there are a few strip clubs, I'm guessing that will be Sending out cancellation notices, knowing that you won't be there. Uh, Massive financial drain from the state with this announcement as well, all due to non-Goodwin stripping opportunities. So we have that. We also have, my man, a vaguely related item. You and I have been tracking for just a little bit. We had been hearing former, recently, very recently, former FIWC president, was he CEO? I don't know. They all kind of mean the same thing to me. FDCEO. The top guy at the WEC, uh, Gerard Nouveau, who left, had heard he might be not staying on in an official capacity, but more of an advisory role, something related Consult- to, consultancy? yeah, consultancy? something in that range uh, to help with the 2023 prototype regulations. That would be LMDH. Who knows if there could have been a hypercar aspect as well. We know that when former America Le Mans series and IMSA president Scott Atherton left, he was retained in this identical role. Advisory had been a part of those uh, discussions from the beginning and left while things were halfway along in that process. So we've been hearing that Gerard might be doing the same. So I sent him a text this morning and just asked that very question. Hey, hearing you might be staying on in some capacity and helping with rules and regulations. And uh, he responded with the most affirmative no and a no and another no. And so mm-hmm. our good pal Gerard is either t- being 100% truthful or mm-hmm. maybe not. Uh, we've heard he might be rocking up at Daytona where Roar Before the 24 testing is taking place right now as well. So who knows? 
But we've at least been told by the man himself that no, he will have no involvement going forward with uh, mm-hmm. WAC slash prototype type stuff. So curious minds want to know, Graham Goodwin. Uh, indeed, it's going to be interesting to see where Gerard actually emerges. And, you know, I think it's becoming in, coming clear certainly just how big, uh, how big an in-tray uh, 2020 must have been for him with uh, new management now, of course, in place. The other big news of the week, of course, is the confirmation of the season entry for the FIA World Endurance Championship. And that came out as 33 cars. The shock, shock omission. By Collis's hypercar. What? Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, I know. I know. Um, Damn you, Dark Web. Yeah, indeed. I've heard uh, two conflicting reports. Report number one is it was uh, some kind of dispute about entry fees. The other one is the uh, the team finally brought to their operational knees by massive overspend on fire extinguishment. That that could Jeez. just be a, a vicious rumour. Uh, but uh, either way, uh, they, they, I think, are also slightly... It's only a minor issue, but I think it's worth mentioning at this point. Slightly, um, you know, how can you put this? Encumbered by the fact that they haven't at the moment got a functional car. Uh, but other than that, they would have been good to go. Some good news, by the way, in that entry um, with confirmation of a uh, LMP2 entry, full season entry into double figures, includes Team WRT, uh, who are shaping up to. Uh, add LMP2 as a long-term program towards clearly they're targeting LMDH. Uh, so that's very good news indeed there. Strong GTM entry. I think we're going to see some big-name drivers through P2, and we already know there's some good uh, big drivers, uh, big-name uh, drivers in P2 and in GTM. Three Aston Martins for lovers of shapely English GT cars uh, in that GTM with uh, the Canadian bear himself, Paul Delalana, confirmed coming back for yet another season uh, with Aston Martin Racing. So Pro Drive will remain in that paddock. Uh, so good stuff coming there for me, MP. And I don't know about you, the uh, the decision on Sebring is the correct one. It's had one very pleasant uh, side effect confirmed today by Jim Glickenhouse that uh, he would have missed Sebring. But the slight delay to the season and the um, the opportunity to actually truck the cars from his test session to Portimao, test sessions to Portimao, rather than freight them, means that we will, he tells me, see both of the Glickenhaus SCG uh, 007 hypercars for the opening race of the season two. So that should mean we get all five of the full season cars for Portimao. And it's a great track. Good to see. Be good to see what uh, just how a full grid and a very different looking grid at the front end is going to race with that. But while we're all about that, your the, the, I guess that what's tip of your tongue is what am I going to choose first? Where are we going to go in terms of the questions for this week's edition of the Week in Sports Cars? Well, we've talked a lot already about um, WEC, but shouldn't ignore that we've got cars on track this very day. Both you and I have already written words about those cars being on track. IMSA's roar before the Rolex 24 is underway as we record. Uh, It's going to be effectively kind of 10 days of action, isn't it, MP? So I think we're going to start in your bailiwick with IMSA. Ooh, Um, well, that's good. Because we have, as of right now, exactly 
one hour and 29 minutes till the next session. So we better rock and roll. Go, go, go. So first question comes from Will James. First time questioner here. Welcome, hey, Will. Welcome, welcome, Will. Would it be possible for current spec GTLM Corvettes to be bopped with a, pot- a potential GTD Pro class next season i don't think there's much that's potential about it. it's actual next season therefore to be able to do le mans 2 or would that be way too expensive so can you bop a gte down to gtd you could of course will if imsa chose to keep gtlm and then decided to slow gtlms to get closer to gtd on a pro level and or take the GTD Pro BOP and try and dial the cars up to GTLM or maybe meet somewhere in the middle. All these things are possible. And I do use the words that are submitted intentionally, Will. Possible? Absolutely. Going to happen? Absolutely not. Uh, We do have a pretty key difference just to acknowledge between GTLM slash GTE regulations and GTD slash GT3. About and that is, pardon? About 5 million bucks. Uh, yeah, and some letters too. Um, <laughs> the GTD, GT3 slash GTD cars are built from day one to really cater towards the amateur driver, the pro-am driver, just say the non-pro. And that's done through assistive systems whether it is uh, a traction control type deal, whether it is just anti-lock braking, whether it is, whether it is, the car is designed from the outset to be something that, obviously with the pro side of the pro-am relationship, they are going to extract every ounce of potential from the car, but it's designed in a way so that the am is not put in a disadvantaged position, and they too can, uh, thanks to many of those systems, go extremely quick without having to take extreme risks or jeopardy. GTLM has none of those driver-assistive items in them. They're really not about trying to make things easier in any way, shape, or form. So that's where we have the, the key difference here. So if we're trying to BOP the two, you're going to have a GTD car. If we're talking a GTLM brought down in performance, that is going to win in the braking zones for sure, and that's where I'd say most passes happen, or on entry two, most things happen there. You just have two vehicle philosophies, Will, that are too far apart, and that's why. Definitely keep your ears open next week. Uh, I'll be very surprised if we do not hear final and formal confirmation of what I've written about, Graham's written about, I think most sports car racing reporters have written about recently or within the past however long that sadly due to low manufacturer subscription in gtlm the numbers just aren't there to sustain the class in the short term or the immediate future therefore we need to make an adjustment so we'll be utterly shocked will if by this time next week all of us have not written stories saying coming in 2022 is formally whatever they're going to call it gtd plus gtd pro and uh, GTD, who knows, AM or just GTD, whatever it is, we will all be shocked if this is not formalized next week. Therefore, no need to try and bop G 
GTLM and GTD, but certainly it's possible, but you'd never end up with truly equal cars because of the design philosophy differences. Moving to our second question, just to clarify, by the way, that will be an if it's going to happen. I think it probably will. Uh, as an announcement, that'll be IMSA only. It will not be in the world of the WEC. Uh, another first-time question. Huh? What about SRO? Uh, could SRO announce they're going to add a GTLM could, class they, and then delete it? Ooh, that'd save it, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. No, they're not. No. Uh, so, first-time question again, albeit just a first-time question of this week. Daniel Scott, <laughs> summer skill. Uh, why is the livery on the Chip Ganassi Racing, as my computer decides to shut down, thank you very much, so dull? Um, he's not said, but I think he's implying. Does that impl- does that dullness in any way reflect the personality of anybody involved in the team? He says there was so much fanfare before its unveiling. Yet we're presented with yet another grey, red and black monstrosity. The era motorsport livery created by a six-year-old fan looks better. Don't teams have an imagination? I should make it clear, by the way, those early shots made it look white. It's not white. It's grey. Daniel's right. Uh, so what is it? Is Chip that dull? Is that what it means? Jesus. Daniel, I mean, you know Chip has the ability to send a drone strike, right? So we're all <laughs> mindful here. Oh, boy. So it's not gray. It's some sort of in-between white and gray, and I forget what name they've given this color. It's a brand-new color that's been unveiled on Cadillac line of crystal, ice, charcoal. I don't know what, but anyways, some sort of inventive word salad to say, yeah. Um, here's what I can share with you, Daniel. And this is such an interesting thing, which we've spoken about very briefly on the show in recent weeks, but it, it deserves further exploration. And I'm hoping to get a honest answer when I speak with the new program manager for all of GM sports car racing programs early next week. Uh, congratulations on that promotion. Laura Wantrop Clouser, by the way, um, This is a full factory thing, Daniel, and that is a departure from all previous Cadillac DPI programs. Am I aware and are we fully aware that General Motors has definitely assisted some of its teams, maybe some more than others, maybe some not at all, but are we aware that GM, as is not uncommon in a factory-type class like DPI, uh, really been centrally involved with the teams or most of the teams that have represented the brand with the Cadillac DPI? Yeah, so we know that to be a fact. But we've never had a true 100% all Cadillac vehicle, meaning it is just them. So if we look at Action Express, they've had Mustang sampling in the past. They currently have and have had for a while Sonny Whelan's Whelan Engineering we look at wayne taylor racing before they moved to acura we know about the konica minolta relationship many others including justice brothers uh, who are still with them one of our our key partners on the show run down the list of all the cadillacs you've seen uh jdc has, has come into that family a little bit more in terms of the factory support this year did not receive any last year but nonetheless this is the first true cadillac factory program in dpi And as a result, I know you've called it dull. I know that some others have said they just don't find much about it. That's compelling. This isn't a let's make the car pretty because we want to and we think it would be cool. This is corporate branding, corporate ID, 
100% for the very first time in DPI with a Cadillac. So what do you get? You get the exact color and the big Cadillac logo running across what Andy Blackmore refers to as the big honking fin. This is their factory ID. And so therefore that's what you get. As for the era motorsport thing you mentioned. Yeah. Um, if you believe that that looks better than the Ganassi Cadillac, I'm just, I'm going to add you to my, uh, nightly prayer list, Daniel. Um, I like it. I like it. No, you like don't. It. You can't do. like it. No, I like that. Come on. And I like the, P- the PR one car as well. Looks awesome. with the wind's livery. Awesome. In the wind's livery. Yeah. Wins. That's a direct competitor for, uh, the justice brothers. Thank you there. Graham Goodwin. Um, uh, all right. Where are we going next? My friend. <laughs> yes. Where are we going next? My friend. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's the second time ever questioning this week from Daniel Summerskill, who says, what happened with Inter-Europol competition running its LMP2 in the Rolex 24 before Sebring? He says the team said the car would be remaining in the US through the Rolex. Obviously, something has happened to change those plans. I think I know the answer to that. Yeah, I'm going to throw that to you. And we also skipped the uh, the one above it uh, okay, from Robert, the elusive goose. Robert, uh, so. Well, those two. so the answer is, it wasn't their car. Uh, their car was only delivered in December. Uh, that was the second PR1 Matheson car. But it, they ran a different car, I think I'm right, at Sebring. I don't think it was the second. I think it might have been an era car at Sebring. So the answer is those cars have stayed in the US, but they're just not for into Europol. I think the answer overall here is the Polish team have decided to focus all of their efforts. Got a big change behind the scenes in into Europol, focus all their efforts on their uh, WC campaign. So that is why you've not seen them um, at uh, the Rolex 24. Um, they are focusing their efforts on what's going to be coming for the WEC and their brand new Orica. Are you uh, new- sure it wasn't some sort of pushback from IMSA saying we can only have so many Euro, Inter, Pole, Pole, Euro, Inter, <laughs> W, Eurasia, Pole, Inter, like... It's a Eurasia Pole. Yes. Yeah. Um, Euro, 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 Inter, Europole, International. Pole. Asia. Yes. Odd, Bratislava. We, we forgot Bratislava. <laughs> uh, and by the way, sure. congratulations to ASC Bratislava for getting their entry for the FIWC, the Meroic the miraculous uh, Miroslav Miro Konopka um, with his astonishing ability to wander around the paddock in just his wife runs um, will be a massive blessing to an FI World Championship. Like Lewis Hamilton, but totally different. So we actually do, by the way, have first time ever teams from two European nations that have never been in the WC before. One is Poland into Europol and the other one is Slovakia. I thought I saw something from Moldova as well. And then Just I, me bullying something. <laughs> well, no, but then I thought that was like where Dr. Doom was from in my comic book era. And I thought it was a made-up country. And then I realized that at, after five decades on the planet or whatever, like, wow, you're dumber than even anticipated, Pruitt. Uh, where do we go next, brother? Uh, we're going to go to the elusive goose who says, given that Audi and Porsche are both entering LMDH, what's the likelihood for fellow VHE member, Volkswagen Audi Group, Bugatti entering the ring too? None. Where do we go next, Graham Goodwin? <laughs> 
Pardon? Where do we go next? We're going to get... We're going to go to Kevin Payne. Remind what? us to give us the in- yes, the inside track on Polymoto. Would love to hear your thoughts on the prospects of the various DPI teams with new cars and drivers. So you've got two little challenges there. What's coming with DPI car, uh, cars and drivers? And uh, a reminder to give us the entire rundown in the next ten seconds of the Polymotors. Yes. So the Polymotor was pretty cool. Uh, it was indeed an attempt to use plastics uh, to make a motor, and this happened to be an IMSA's Camel Lights class, not the big 1,000-horsepower GTP class, so at roughly 300 or so horsepower requirements. um, They did actually make one that ran a little bit and was promoted, and I still haven't had a chance to go back and read through everything that I needed because I think a lot of it's actually still in storage, but... As I recall, they did use plastic for the block. I think that was the biggest, biggest uh, breakthrough. Uh, The concern being, well, is it going to melt? Trying, obviously, to use something that was lighter than metal. And, yeah, I believe it was bolted into uh, a Lola chassis. I'm forgetting exactly which. Uh, model of Lola, but this was the mid 1980s, and it was it was very novel. And I know that's a bit of a duh, no shit, Pruitt, but uh, this really did stand out for being totally different compared to like, oh, this is a reasonable direction the automotive industry is heading, and here's the first example of it in racing. This was a you're doing what? are you serious you know hey we're gonna use plastic polymers to try and be involved in serious you know racing and just automotive applications didn't really go anywhere uh i know that but i do seem to recall that it did have one fairly decent finish in uh camel lights might have even been a podium uh in and around like 80 45 86 something like that so there was a, a pretty serious proof of concept here, Graham, that was, despite it being so weird and just catching headlines because it was just the, what? Uh, they did actually do okay with it in IMSA. It project didn't last very long, and it never took off as a vaguely serious automotive application. But I just thought it was so cool for the... Well, yes, sure, come and try that here where you can. That's what former eras of sports car racing allowed. And this is not meant to turn into the old guys whinging about how racing was better in the past. And No, just saying that the approach and allowances were very different than modern sensibilities where today homologating seemingly everything is just the approach being held by so many championships this mid 80s or well i should say 70s and 80s even early 90s uh in imsa i know across in your way graham with uh group c and group c2 and you know the forerunner of the wec there's also that freedom of concept allowed in so many ways and the only governor for this the only filter for it was money or success and yep. if you had the money to try your crazy thing, you did it. 
And if it just kept blowing up and went nowhere and uh, either you got tired of it or your sponsors or whatever got tired of it, then it stopped. But other than that, you could bring a plastic motor or a motor that had significant plastic componentry or whatever you wanted and go and try and run it as long as it complied with the fairly basic rules and guidelines. And they did. And like I said, I I wish this is something that had more money behind it so they could have continued it because who knows how far it could have gone. Uh, I guess we would have to point to Graham, some of the modern projects, uh, the Nissan GTR LM1, Nismo R1, GTLM1, Nismo RM. Um, Yes. Uh, The Delta Wing did hang around for a while, thanks to Don Panos, but if we think about in its original, true original form, uh, as a a Nissan project, that certainly didn't last. It was, again, taken over, but um, sometimes these things kind of pop up, amuse us, and then go away. I'll just say to close here on this, Kev, um, I have the same mindset about hydrogen and what is kind of sort of starting to happen uh, in the WC and what's trying to happen there with the use of hydrogen-powered prototypes. I love to see it. It's fascinating, and we know that, you know, they one exists at least, but we expect to see more models. But is this something that's really going to take off? Or is this going to be an interesting footnote and nothing more? I don't know. But right now, Graham, I'm leaning a little footnote-ish. And then to close on Kev's last question, uh, I mean, I think what we're going to do is just wait till next week, Kev. So just as you threw in the polymotor question again, uh, Graham and I next week will do our best to do more of a Rolex 24 preview thoughts and opinion show than just uh-huh. a regular send-in questions for all four categories show because it's the first big pro sports car race of the year that we happen to cover with love and passion. Um, quick, Just a, a very, very quick aside. In those initial pictures we saw of the Ganassi Cadillac in the workshop, there's, a, there's racks of cars on the wall. Am I right that in one of those shots there is one of the early Delta Wing concepts? On the Ganassi wall? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, that was a gray car. Yeah. So that was a that was a heavy Ganassi influenced thing in the beginning. Um, <laughs> we could get into it, but we won't right now. Um, ben Bowlby, designer of it, Ganassi employee. Uh, yeah. There was some not happy. Uh, let's just draw a veil over that. Eh? Let's let's just say that things did not happen in a happy way there. But yes, Chip Ganassi Racing was uh, directly involved at the onset of it. Okay, uh, move on to John Sable. John says, "Just saw that uh, the Daytona 24-hour qualifying race. This is remember this weekend with the raw test. There will be a race to determine the grid for next weekend's, as opposed to this weekend's." Um, Rolex 24 hours, uh, that there is going to be a Daytona qualifying race thingy on NBCSN this Sunday. Also, he says, but with two divisional championship NFL games at the same time, was there any way to avoid this? There was a way to avoid it, do it at a different time. But uh, that might be just a simplistic answer. What say you, Marshall Pruitt? Yeah. Yeah, it's the only thing I'm slightly grumpy about. I think 
John, I mean, it's not. No, it's not. Come uh, on. No, That's well, yeah. Uh, when I read John's up. note, I'm like, well, you and I are. John's always pretty darn smart and adept at uh, seeing things and recognizing things. And you and I held the same opinion when we saw that brother because, yeah, it's the only thing I'm a little grumpy about. Uh, and it falls right between, um, I think, the air quote qualifying race or race or whatever the hell we're going to call it. I believe it falls between the two games that will determine who is uh, playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, I don't know, man. I can tell you that this is a bit of a normal thing, though, because January mid, well, January tends to be a, a time where NFL playoff games start ramping up. And so I've been accustomed over the years to trying to keep an eye on them while Roar is taking place. Um, <laughs> I know that at times over the years, Graham, I have asked the kind folks in the Daytona media center to put one of their many televisions that happened to, to be around everyone, put at least one of them onto the various football games so we can keep track of that. So I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know how to respond to this because I'm still trying to grasp the hey, we're going to have a qualifying race, and it's going to be on TV. And eh, I don't know. Um, I just I find it weird and comical, but people I'm, who get I'm paid com- money more than you and I, Graham, decided it needs to happen. So, uh, hey, we're going to have a winner of a qualifying race and two winners of football games going to the Super Bowl, all crowned on the same day. Well, it would be what would be a tragedy if that got mixed up, wouldn't it? And we ended up with Chip Ganassi racing at the Super Bowl. That would be that would be a bad thing. That wouldn't go well. Um, and people would complain about the livery there as well. Let's move on. Jonathan Wu says, if GTLM class does indeed collapse next year, it will. What will happen to the Pratt and Miller C8Rs? Will they make factory GT3 cars for for customers or build LMDH car car hypercar LMD? Uh, Huskies to continue the Le Mans journey. You really want to see both happening, but it's almost impossible in reality. Continuation uh, of the earlier points, isn't it, really? Yes. I'm just going to throw in something real quick because uh, while you were talking, I was exchanging texts with a dear friend of ours, France's lovely son, that is Simon Pagano, uh, congratulating him on going fastest this morning in the opening uh, session. And he just replied telling me, thanks, but it actually wasn't me. Uh, so for you, uh, I'm just sending an email right now. Um, that was uh, his teammate, Kamui Kobayashi. And uh, IMSA apparently maybe got the helmet ID wrong or was unsure. But uh, what IMSA sent out as the uh, fastest driver of the morning, it was indeed uh, Japan's Kamui Kobayashi. Um, not Francis Simon Pagano. So the, the, um, the sound you'll hear in the background is me changing the story on Daddy's podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, why don't we just? And I'm going to keep this in. Look, the, my indie week in IndyCar listener Q and A show. I regularly refer to that as my unpolished turd. Sometimes the turdiness uh, kind of shapes and and stinks up the show a little bit too. So that's my fault. Um, all right, you just asked a question that I've totally forgotten, and I'm an idiot. Jonathan Wu, right? Um, yeah, this is about, uh, this is about uh, Corvettes. Yeah. Uh, are they going to do GT3s, or are they going to build boats for rapid um, rapid kind of running? What are they going to do? 
Well, Jonathan, as I wrote in my little opinion, hey, we got to go to a consolidated class for GTs. That's all GT3. I did mention that there is a precedent that's been set by Pratt Miller and GM and Corvette Racing, and that is if a class evolves into something else here in America, they have evolved with it. So I do not have a single word from anybody at GM saying that they will indeed either build new C8Rs to GT3 spec or convert their current cars to GT3 spec. I know that there was an interview done with Laura uh, Klauser-Wantrop from, or Wantrop-Klauser, I always get the two mixed up, uh, done with Laura uh, saying that, you know, they're looking at LMDH, looking at GT3 and whatnot in the future. i just tell you this. Uh, when we come back to Daytona next year, and we're talking about GTD Pro or GTD Plus or whatever it is, you will indeed be seeing, hearing, and enjoying GT3 spec Corvette C8Rs. They're not going away. There's no plan to quit. There's no plan to go over and just do WEC. Uh, they will be here in America. They have made a have made a long-term investment for a long time and continue to be fully invested in IMSA. So... Knowing that GTLM is going away, Jonathan, you can rest assured that this does not signal the end of Corvette racing in IMSA with their C8Rs. The giant question nobody has an answer to at the moment, which is more on your side of coverage, Graham, is, so since we kind of know this is what IMSA is doing, what happens to the gtlm spec c8rs in terms of going over to le mans each year knowing that imsa is expect or we'll just stop saying expect imsa is going to do this <laughs> uh, i mean there's no way they can't um they're gonna say in imsa that's gonna be their thing we know i mean again that these are all just known things we'll just we're waiting for the official thing from them but rest assured but imsa is going in a different direction than whack with their gt classes so great Will Cadillac Corvette still go and do Le Mans? We don't know. And the earlier thing that I raised just a moment ago about will they convert the current or build new to GT3 spec? Obviously, if they take their current GTLM cars and rebuild them as GT3, in theory, they wouldn't have any GTLM cars to take to Le Mans uh, unless they were to then somehow build new GTLM car just for, again, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. So the, to me, the real answer to that, Jonathan, is when we find out what they're going to do. Build new to GT3, convert the current to GT3. If it's a conversion, I think that might speak to possible end to running over and playing at Le Mans each year. Brilliant. Okay, let's crack on. Next up, it's going to be Tom Bacon, who says, there's another one we keep returning to, has Pippa Durrani's reputation the paddock suffered after his brain fart moments at Sebring with Juan Pablo Montoya? I'm not in that paddock right now. I, If I could, which reporters are not allowed to, walk around the paddock or pit lane, I would certainly be asking lots of folks, because it's an enduring piece of humor. Uh, I can just add this tom quickly before we move on to the next questions the reputational hits that he has taken i've heard mostly from team owners slash team managers the type of folks who might 
be in a position to receive his call in the future if and when he's looking for work. And it's among potential employers, I would say, where I've heard the most in terms of damage being done. And yeah, he's welcome to call, but uh, it's going to be a short conversation. Um, I've heard from a few drivers who might not have had the fondest of things to say about Pippo after the uh, Sebring stuff. I'll just say to close that I think they might not have held a high reputation, uh, high held him in high regard beforehand. So compared to everyone being the ones who've had critical things to say that I have heard directly, I would say that they didn't love him before. Then all of a sudden fell out of love. Let's say some of them might not have had the finest things to say about him beforehand, but that's actually not a big number of people though. So I need to be clear there. This is not waves of drivers. It's a relatively small number just because I haven't asked and, or they haven't offered on that many haven't offered on their own. It's also a little bit of the past. So we'll see if he decides to be a angelic uh, guy for the season and hopefully put that to bed as just a real big brain fart and one that is not going to be amplified by further demonstrations uh, like that. Okay, Kevin Perez Rodrigo says, "Hey MP, with Marco Andretti stepping back from IndyCar, he's openly expressed interest in full time in IMSA amongst other series. What class do you think he would gravitate towards?" I'm sure he'd love prototypes. I've heard nothing from him talking about GT racing is the thing that tickles my little heart. He's mentioned his cousin slash nephew slash I'd never remember what the relation is. Jarrett, who's embarking upon an LMP3 yep. calendar, uh, yep. right? And so we've known about that, or I should, yeah. I've known about that for a little bit, but um, what do I think is the most likely place for him to end up? It'd probably be in an LMP2 seat somewhere. And that's because on the DPI side, basically fixed for the year, the only alternate that might happen is if JDC Miller Motorsports were to go back to being two cars or have occasional second entries, Marco being pretty closely affiliated with Honda, I don't know how well that Cadillac thing might be. So I'd say realistically it's going to be P2 or P3, and at least for now that would be about the best I could expect for him to find or make happen if he wanted to. I mentioned this, Graham, on my Week in IndyCar listener show, I think on Monday, um, texting with Marco Fairmount since he made this announcement or since this announcement came out and asked him, I forget the exact how the setup was, but it was basically, uh, you know, hey, are you up for chatting about this? You know, maybe joining me on my Weekend IndyCar listener uh, guest show. And he just replied and said, thanks, man, but uh, I'm actually just going to uh, lay low completely until the Indy 500. So that happens and kicks off in mid-May. Just suggests, Kevin, that Marco is not presently thinking of going out and doing all kinds of things racing or otherwise if he were to change his mind he certainly has the free time to be able to say oh no i want to go try and do sebring or whatever whatever but it sounds like marco's mindset is i want to take some time for myself take it easy a bit 
and figure things out in due time. My note about P2 and P3 is more of a 2021 specific thing. I would hope for him, genuinely hope for him, Kev, and Graham, who's obviously you've seen him race uh, in prototypes before. I hope he can find something fulfilling in IMSA, in DPI, LMDH, the top class, the fastest, most demanding cars, because the kid's been magic in blindingly fast prototypes just on a personal fulfillment angle, Graham. I'd love Mm -hmm. to see him step into something like that because I think the source of joy that's been missing from his life and career for a little while, I think that could be rediscovered if he were able to do that. Relight the fire. Wouldn't that be a great thing to see? Let's move on. Let's go to Tom Firth with the, it's another one about GM with the changes around GM's IMSA efforts. What way do you think they might go next? GT3, LMDH, but both something completely different. Balloon racing, Whitewater Rapids. E-scooter. I saw an announcement. There's an actual e-scooter challenge, and Carlin Racing signed up for it. Oh, for God's sake, yes. They'll probably enter their LMP2 Delara. Tom, uh, if we're looking, you mentioned LMDH. Overstating the obvious, we know that that doesn't launch until 2023. I would say since your question is framed around the future a couple years from now, what do you think they might be doing? I think they'll be doing the same exact thing they're doing right now. Whether it's called a Cadillac, uh, LMDH-R.V or whatever, V.R, whatever. Snappy. Yeah. Um, uh, LMDH-V.R. I can't tell you if it would be under Cadillac branding. Could it be a Corvette of some sort? There's rumors that there might be genuine, and I mean this seriously, there have been genuine rumors that there could be a Corvette sub-brand launched. I'm not saying that those rumors are accurate. I'm not saying that it will happen, because I don't know either of those to be true. But I have heard that there could be, just as Honda-formed Acura, Toyota-formed Lexus, etc., that there could be a... Something vet, uh, more vet. Ooh. I don't know. Uh, there could is this, be. Is this along the lines, MP, that um, Ford have used the Mustang, uh, well, not brand, it's a model name, um, for their new electric, their EV? Yeah, I know. Weird, huh? So gonna, Maybe. Yeah. May, I mean, again, if we're talking branding and value, <coughs> there's nothing within uh, the GM offerings anywhere. I think that stands higher than Corvette. We know the Camaros, obviously. I mean, there's lots of great iconic brands, but if we're just talking pinnacle, Corvette's known as the peak of performance. So the idea of having a sub-brand that is pretty darn close, again, I don't know, but I've heard that. So I just mentioned this, Tom, because I don't know what it'd be called. Would it still be a Cadillac? Would it be something else? Who knows? But I think what you see right now, is exactly what you're going to see in 2023 with GM. Change the name, class name to whatever, right? DPI to LMDH, uh, GTD Pro Plus or whatever. I think we're just going to see what we have. And I can't imagine a time when Corvette racing is not running Corvettes uh, in GT form. No, it's, uh, it's clearly, I'm afraid that's a rather 
ones are the Atlantic view about the brand values that apply to some of those model names. Clearly, you've no idea of the cultural impact of the Vectra that we had over here for many, many years. Uh, that, I mean, you know, Corvette, I mean, that's that, yeah, obviously. Okay, we can announce it. Uh, John Cleland is coming out of retirement to lead the, uh, the, the Opal Vectra, Astra Vectra, whatever the hell it was. Yes. Turn one is going to be amazing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, let's move on. Brandon Gratzer says, with Audi and Porsche supposedly using Multimatic as their chassis supplier, isn't it a bit odd they run the Mazda program, assuming Mazda has an MDH program? I know Penske has it with Ilmore and Hendrick supplies engines for others, but it just seems like the chassis deal, they would steal some intellectual property from the competition. He's starting to feel like an old veteran around here, he says now, since his question wasn't answered on the long last show. We'll get that sorted. Oh, Brandon, I'm sorry, brother. I meant to delete this one. Oh, crap. I'm sorry. All right, next from Alex Eichmeller. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, Brandon. Uh, weird. No, I mean, the whole logjam in this rule approach is we're going to allow four constructors to satisfy everybody. And it would only be normal or expected for one of the constructors to double up, if not triple up. And granted, we do not know if Mazda will continue with an LMDH program. Trailgram that I spent more than a half hour on the phone yesterday with Mazda Motorsports boss Nelson Cosgrove. Love that guy, by the way. Uh, talking about this. Uh, future ideas and thoughts. Hey, could Mazda be in, be out? And he said, look, you know, and it'll be a, I hope a fairly interesting story. Uh, he said, look, obviously I'm not going to announce that in an interview with you idiot. And I'm like, well, I know that I wasn't so much asking that, but I was just asking, Hey, this is a time where we think a lot of manufacturers are going to be making decisions, right? Timing wise, we're going to have to do that. Um, and so he just, you know, gave me his thoughts about the class, not necessarily Mazda's. There's no official Mazda position on LMDH. But what he did get into was the th- process of determining how and when and why uh, in terms of LMDH. And so it's a, to me, at least, it's a really interesting process story that you could apply, Graham, to almost any manufacturer that is coming in or thinking they're going to be coming in. And I keep hearing there's going to be an announcement next week um on that subject so i think we might have a third uh manufa lmdh manufacturer peeking their head out and saying we're we're gonna come play yeah um but in this it's just an interesting thing where nelson tells us a lot about how manufacturers would come to this decision that could be applied to almost you know hey is hyundai gonna come in well read this article it what nelson has to offer is gonna tell you basically what all the rest are having to go through behind the scenes to figure out whether they will or won't. But uh, if Mazda were to continue, I would expect them to stay with Multimatic, who run their team, um, and build the car. But I realize, Brandon, that we're talking two different classes, but Multimatic was more than capable of building Mazda's RT24P and taking greater roles in engineering and operationally while also building and doing vast support for Ford's GTE slash GTLM program. I realize, once again, different uh, classes, but these are still big manufacturers who expect 
all of their technology, all their IP to be walled off. Trust me, if there is some really brilliant way that Ford was doing their traction control, uh, or uh, I should say, um, hell, gearbox strategy, uh, shifting strategy, or fueling the vehicle in some sort of really super innovative way, that could potentially be shared with Mazda if, by chance, Ford's approach was better than Mazda's in that regard, or vice versa if Mazda did something that was amazing that um, uh, the other was. Anyways, there's meant to be, and there is, a hardcore wall between said programs. And so, of course, there's always going to be the question of, well, are they, could they? Of course, one could or would. The moment such thing would be learned would mean the end of Multimatic as a company that makes it makes its money from auto manufacturers. The things that they do in the automotive world, that is the big, big, big source of income. The minute any impropriety uh, came to light, or if there was even a serious question floating around, that could be the end of the business. So... I mentioned all that just to close on this quickly, Brandon, because, yes, Audi and Porsche coming in, uh, that's the way this is supposed to happen uh, with these limited four constructor options to manufacturers, but there absolutely has to be uh, plans and programs in place that make sure that what sits on Multimatic server regarding Mazda or any other manufacturer they work with is simply not available and never shared with any of the other brands that come in. Otherwise, the whole business falls apart. A couple more quick ones here. One from Alex Eichmiller says, Who, how hard do you think teams are going to push in the Daytona qualifying race for a race that qualifies for a race thing? Uh, some points on the line in the qualifying race, but it seems like a lot of risk, risk for tearing up a car for the week of the 24. Yeah. So... Best answer I can give you, Alex, is this. I've had more team owners tell me they don't give a flying fart about the qualifying race and therefore pushing their vehicles to 101% in pursuit of their starting position than those who have said maximum attack. Oh, I mean, we just are dreaming of this qualifying race because you're going to see performance like never, ever before. It is the former that I've heard. It's actually the only thing I've heard from those that I've spoken with. And I've spoken with a number of drivers, too, um, some of who I think I might, we might have thrown in last week with Montoya, who was like, could you explain this to me again and what this is? And I'm like, dude, aren't you going to be like in one of those cars? He's like, yeah, I know, but I don't know what the hell this is. Just take that. Alex, as yep. the thing that I have heard more than anything else on this subject. I am not saying that is the paddock-wide-held approach. I'm, again, I can only speak for those I have spoken with or those who have reached out and spoken to me about whatever. Um, my little sample data is a bunch of folks saying, we're going to do it, but we're going to make sure we don't tear up our cars, and we're going to make sure that we aren't, you know, throwing away tons of money because we've burned up the thing in pursuit of starting first, second, or third compared to fourth or fifth 
in a 24-hour race. <laughs> uh, right, we've got three questions. We're going to wrap into one uh, Uber question here. The first is from David Dennis. Another first-time questioner. You're welcome, David. Says he loves the podcast. So do we. Uh, with LMP3 now part of IMSA's WeatherTech Series in 2021, what's the cost difference between full-season LMP2 and LMP3 programs? Asks uh, David. Then we've got uh, Luke Filipponi says, with seven P3s for the Rolex 24, are we expecting more or fewer entries for the full season? As he understands it, all of the cars in the race are not necessarily full season efforts. Uh, then Doogie Davis says, is there any concern about LMP3 being faster in the hands of drivers like Colin Brown uh, and overtaking gentleman drivers in LMP2? GTLM cars already seem to trip themselves up on the starts and restarts over the LMP2 bronze-rated drivers. All three classes barreling into Turn 1 sounds messy. On that last one, the quickest LMP3 in free practice was ahead of the GTLMs, was it not? Yeah, but just by uh, the smidgiest of smidges yep. using official time measurement there, by the way. Uh, yeah, let me see. Uh, the slowest P2 car turned a best lap of 141.3. The best P3, that being Mjolnir Motorsports America, 143.6. So what, 2.2, 2.3-ish seconds slower than the slowest P2. Um, but that, in fairness, that's the fastest driver in the slowest P2. Fair enough. Um, if we're talking peak LMP2, the best uh, LMP3 lap was six seconds off. Uh, now, just comparing, as Graham mentioned, P3 and GTLM, uh, the fastest P3 was a hundred, a cup, two and a half, what, two hundredths, a little over two hundredths faster. Mm -hmm. So, almost identical um and then was what two and a half seconds faster than the best gtd entry um yeah the the only real note to offer here is yes i think that depending on who's starting in the lmp3 cars because i've had this said to me a, by a couple of people if we're talking the amiest of ams the bronziest of lmp3 drivers starting the race there will be definite fear of what might be coming at them backwards uh, into turn one, locking up, spinning, and uh, whatever happening, possibly. Um, but I haven't heard much in terms of real concern. Otherwise, these cars, if we're talking GTs to prototypes, overstatement of obvious things, they make their speed differently. So uh -huh. there are places on the track where one's going to be better -er than the other. Um, you just hope. The race director, Bo Barfield, is going to be shouting with a bullhorn at the uh, final driver's meeting to any and all of the new to WeatherTech Championship LMP3 drivers that, hey, uh, get familiar with that brake pedal and don't be afraid to take turn one a little easier than you might want to because we're not going to have you guys blown out half the field being uh, highly expensive Liget and other, you know, otherwise bowling balls um, to open the show. Um, uh, the other two quick questions. One was to do with full season numbers, MP. Yeah. What do we know about uh, where that's going to develop? I think it's fair to say slight disappointment about the numbers of LMP3s at the Rolex 24. Yeah, I, I hear we should settle in four to five. Uh, I'd have to take a look back through the list 
to see what I know that there are some expectations for some to be full season. I just maybe lack the full belief that we are going to um, we are going to see all of them actually meet uh, and achieve that goal. So yeah, I'm with you. I know that IMSA's hope was we're going to be talking. They said from the outset, our goal is to limit the class to ten to twelve super high quality full time entries. I think we're going to end up with half or slightly less than half of that number full time. Um, would just hold out a bit of hope, though, maybe as the optimist here, that if we do have a successful debut for the class uh, in the WeatherTech Championship to open the year, maybe that would inspire some of the teams that are fielding the P3 entries that might have some folks who are a little bit on the fence or the much larger field that participates in the IMSA prototype challenge class, which is just LMP three in a standalone series would say, okay, well that wasn't so much of a poop show as we thought. So maybe we should check in and do some race. So uh, I would say let's check in after the race and hope for sure that uh, it demonstrates. Yeah. Okay. Let's go add some more cars and let's go play. Uh, Let's see. Uh, the final one, by the way, was about budgets. Now, I don't know what a budget is I, for LMP2. Yeah, I do know I, what the budget is for LMP3. Yeah. I. How's this? The question was, what's the difference? And uh, reached out to a couple of folks and got some pretty good intel on that. I understand, David, and thanks again for being a first-time questioner. We look forward to you becoming a second-time questioner. Uh, I have been told a, a very solid number you can bank on for the full season is $1 million. So $1 million less than LMP2 is what I've heard is a really solid number to go on in terms of the difference between their full season budgets. Uh, Lawrence, you ask, uh, the WCACO and IMSA agree to coordinate BOP for LMDH and 23 when they run in both series, uh, or will manufacturers have to manage and optimize two different setups? I know that they are talking a lot, and I keep Uh hearing that, those conversations are very positive. So that's not a specific answer, but I do believe there will be pretty heavy coordination on LMDH from the outset. The only way that that would not happen is if, yet again, like we expect with uh, IMSA's GT racing, there's some sort of philosophical difference or uh, numerical difference to cause IMSA to go in a very different direction. For example, if you have a lot of one model over here or a lot more manufacturers participating over here in LMDH and fewer either manufacturers or much lower numbers of a predominant model in IMSA than say in WEC, it might be hard for IMSA to say, hi, we've got six of this model over here. You've got one or two. We're probably not going to adjust our cars to suit what you're learning from two and what we're getting from six. You would kind of expect things to get maybe go the other way for IMSA to lead in that direction. So what I think would be the rational thing, Lawrence, is instead of just one, this is a decision made, and they've both come to this uh, equally, I think it's going to be a little bit more of a push and pull based on who has more of what, who's seeing more of what more frequently, and saying, hey, guys, 
uh, on the IMSA side, we're probably going to take a lead on this model's BOP that you then use. And, hey, you've got more of those. All right, well, we're going to listen to you and apply that to the one or two that run over here. That's how I think it would happen. We just hope that they don't break it off and say, screw you, we're going to do our own thing. Because then you do have manufacturers going, come on, man, <laughs> what uh, what is going on? But it's not like, Graham, we've ever heard that before in sports car racing. Uh, let's go to the last question here. And I'll read it just because I think I can. Um, or am I? No, this is a, I'm sorry. Dennis Prokniak. I had my brain on something totally different. Um, so you read the piece about GTLM, GT3 Pro. One more thing you said you don't understand. Who's going to fund the GT3, GT3, GT3 Pro teams? Good Lord, Pruitt. Um, I'll, I'll save the rest of, of the question uh, or the rest of the bits added to that. As I understand, and this is the question mark, Dennis, this is something that we expect to see a Corvette there and a BMW. How many others are going to opt in and say, well, we're going to do this too because it can be done at a much lower price tag than GTLM. So your question is one that is the question compared to something that I or anyone else have an answer for because... This is the thing that's exposed a little bit, Graham, in where things are heading. And I know that we got a lot of, again, we've just gone through a lot of IMSA questions because a ton of them came in. I apologize to those of you whose questions we didn't get to, but we need to get to the rest of the stuff here. Um, All I can say, and I'm guessing a lot of others will echo this same sentiment, Dennis, is boy, do we hope that after this announcement is made, which we expect to be made, it's not going to turn into a LMP3-like announcement of, okay, cool, great, this is going to be a good thing, and we're going to do it, and, boy, the numbers just don't fully support it. When you are making a fundamental change to any class structure in the name of increasing car count, and you don't get an increase in car count, you're left in kind of the same position you were in. I know that's an obvious thing, but... You don't obviously want to see IMSA or any other series go through a big change like this only to find that, boy, it didn't really move the needle. So I would say at minimum, (laughs) I would expect to see uh, five, six GT3 Pro, GT3 Plus cars uh, to start. I would hope there'd just be more. Is this a thing that gets McLaren to say, all right, well, cool, we could justify doing this? Um, is this something where run down the list? Audi might say, all right, well, cool, maybe we could do this for a year or two, or who knows, you know, we've got LMDH coming, but maybe we could do this. Run through the other manufacturers who are represented in GTD right now, and you would hope Acura might say, okay, hey, we kick this off. In, what, 2017 with a one season of a fully pro deal? Uh, Maybe we can make that happen again. Lexus, and again, I don't know. This is going to be the question that I'm sure many of us will be asking once we expect this to be confirmed. Is you is or is you ain't? Are you going to be in or aren't you going to be in? I don't have a feel yet, Dennis, for the room and how many are truly thinking we're going to do it once you announce it. Um, so this is going to be a question that once an announcement hopefully does come here next week, Graham, I know you yep. and I and many others are going to be asking the same people the same question, and they're probably going to get really sick and tired of answering it. 
Well, here's the quick question. I don't know if you know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway, which is if we are expecting there to be an announcement, do we expect that announcement to be effectively, here's the playing field, let's wait for the players, or do we think there might be an opportunity, a possibility rather, that that, that announcement might come with some manufacturer names attached to it? Well, that's what we thought was... Well, I mean, we thought that was going for LMDH, didn't we? Yeah, I don't know if we thought in that announcement... There was going to be, and here's the manufacturer. I don't think we expected them to no, be announced in, uh, well, I'm just using no, the word announcement right. because I know it tickles right. Lance Snyder. Uh, announcing the announcement about the announcement, there were no announcements of manufacturers in that LMDH announcement, but I know that you and I were, it was suggested to us there could be just yep. buckle in because, man, your inbox is going to explode with all the manufacturers saying, aha, finally. We're, we're, we're coming or we're, we're evaluating never arrived. So no. I, I'm cautiously cautious about what might happen. I have a feeling you and I, and many others are going to be the ones making the calls asking compared to seeing the, uh, press releases land in our box from those manufacturers. We should be doing some kind of fee for that, shouldn't we, really? Someone should pay us to do this. All right, I am sick of yapping about IMSA, which means you need to pick wherever we are going next. And, Guess uh, where? Um, Taco Tuesdays, that's where we're going. No, it's going to be Weck, Aslam's, Elms, and Aco, the world of the ACO rules racing. That is... The WBC, the Asian Le Mans Series, the European Le Mans Series, the Le Mans 24 Hours, and more or less everything else under the French sun. Aw, well, the French sun's a beautiful little place. Uh, we are going to go to Jeff Easterling. Hey, Jeff. All right, buckling in here. Says, all right, this is officially being submitted to the Bushu Soapbox. Says, I'm kind of over the cries of, but hypercars just look like LMPs. So here's the thing. LMP cars have been, quote, hypercars for years and honestly have been what most road-going cars in the eponymous segment have been aspiring to for quite a while now. It says, in my opinion, the class name is perfect. Hypercars are performance-bred cars of bonkers design, some road-legal, some track-focused. LMH, Lamar Hypercars, are insane performance-focused cars of bonkers design, some based on production cars, some pure racers, intended for ACO and Lamar racing, and... Uh, he just goes on to further anchor and support his belief. Graham, what do you say and what do you think? Because I know I certainly, while reviewing the new Toyota Groot uh, hypercar, was absolutely one of the people that Jeff said he's sick and tired of hearing from because I was so underwhelmed by the lack of difference from the LMP, from the formula it, it supposedly replaces. But looky okay. looks. What should we say? Um, I... I think the answer is I completely understand that point of view, but I disagree. I respectfully disagree, and I think the the issue is this: they made it. it, it look, hypercar has had a very difficult gestation period, hasn't it? But what's been made clear at numerous points here is this was a class. Forgetting LMDH for a moment, this was a class that had space for three specifically very different sorts of automobile, to use the word the word that you're nation incorrectly applies to the word car um, the first is hypercars the kind of road going or track focused mega machines that are produced for mind-blowing amounts of money by sometimes boutique manufacturers sometimes more mainstream manufacturers also 
concept cars they were mentioned in other words these are the things that were never really designed to get to um, a paying customer but were designed by probably more likely a mainstream manufacturer to show off their brand values that was the, the general way in which things were were done in those ways and the third part of it was racing prototypes there was always an intention that was a racing prototype angle to the hypercar formula uh Toyota, you know, and again, I take the point. It, it looks very different to the TSO 50, but there are similarities visually to it, although nothing similar underneath the uh, the bodywork. Uh, they always said that they would be building their hypercar on a prototype basis. It would be a prototype car. They are going to build what I think will be a reasonably fundamentally different vehicle uh, as the road car equivalent of this but that car was never designed initially to be a road going car it was designed first and foremost to be a race car and then to develop a road going uh, version of it fundamentally different philosophies behind those cars and we come back to something we said time and time and time and time again on the weekend sports cars, particularly when we're talking about performance balancing here, is you effectively would have three different, at least three different uh, tasks ahead. One was to balance something like the Toyota, a prototype-based uh, four-wheel drive hybrid car. Two is something based either on a prototype or indeed on a road-going car that has got the two-wheel drive, uh, all internal combustion engine uh, power, such as the Glickenhaus. And the third, had it come to fruition, would have been the Valkyrie. Fundamentally, fundamentally different from absolutely anything else that has existed before and likely since. So uh, the answer is, I get people's kind of frustration with this. I'm sort of in a holding pattern looking towards 2023 although i'll add something else into this mp which everybody missed about that um announcement this week i've not written about it yet and i'll probably regret it because our usual business competition who listens to the weekend sports cars will hear what i'm about to say and we'll go and find the same document i did which is the aco are accepting lmdh in 2022 wow it's there in black and white well that's a biracial approach to regulations then. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, we are going, Hey, you know, I am loving this episode. Why yet another first time questionnaire. That really? is Chris mock. Yes. Hey, Chris, Chris, how you doing? And the, I would say maybe the, uh, the, the super B side rare, k-r-i-s chris right i mean that that's a gem of a, a beautiful differentiation chris says the lmh regulation graham they seem extremely loose on the aero side in other words no longer mentions of shark fin requirement or having to hide various mechanical components so it seems very tailored towards existing hypercars road-based hypercars like aston martin's valkyrie Oh, I get sad when that word comes up on the show. Uh, it feels a bit strange that there's so little normative text on air regulation and that whether or not something is uh, approved is on, quote, the sole discretion of the ACO. Chris says, sounds a bit blackboard for fans to reason about what's allowed and what isn't. What's your take on the aero regs? 
Let me give you someone else's take on the error regs. Uh, and that was a conversation I had earlier, good 45 minutes on the phone, to Jim Glickenhouse. We were talking about his car that's coming together um, at their uh, podium engineering um, contractors in Italy. And he said, effectively, what you're looking at is an LMP car with worse aero. That's what it is. Yeah. Because the restriction on it is that your, um, your ratio of downforce to drag is significantly restricted by regulation that's how they're reducing performance it's an area by the way that toyota were amazing at they 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 absolutely were top of their game in terms of their ability to squeeze the best out of the aero packages they had on their ts series remember with the old um the Le Mans, uh, the LMP1 hybrids, one of the key factors there was retaining momentum. When you came off that hybrid power, it was the aerodynamics ability to continue to allow that forward thrust that the, um, um, the hybrid system had given the car to retain that momentum. And aerodynamics has a huge part to play in that. And it's an area that through the life of those LMP1 hybrids, massive, absolutely massive, um, you know, progress was made in the early days of the LMP1 hybrids. Coming off boost was a deceleration of 1G. That's what it did, and that was reeled back in, uh, principally, okay, principally by some more sophistication of the systems and the way in which they deployed, uh, but also the way in which the manufacturers understood that the uh, the potential that they could build into the the difference. Uh, aerodynamic packages. The big change now, and it's a huge change for a company like Toyota, is you've not got the opportunity to put a Le Mans aero package on. You've got one aero package. One aero package for the season. I think the regulations say that that can be reviewed once in the life cycle of that car, um, and only once. And that generally is meant to accommodate a manufacturer bringing a revised and updated or a replacement model um, if it's based on some kind of road car uh, concept. But the uh, how do I read it? I read it as doing exactly what it's designed to do, Chris, which is to help the, uh, the organizations, IMSA and the ACO, um, to balance the performance of those cars. In other words, there is an equation. It applies pretty strict controls on the performance of that, what the, the, the outturn of performance that those uh, aerodynamic packages produce to take out as much as you possibly can a differentiation factor between a Toyota LMH and a bit further down the line, an Audi or a Porsche or uh, insert name of other manufacturers that may or may not announce in a few days' time or weeks or months, LMDH. It's all about playing to the brand new Sheriff and the brand new sheriff is Sheriff Bob. Yeah, look at that. Sheriff Bob. Where are we going next? We're going to our pal Joshua Barrett. Says, could we see LMH cars in the ELMS or Asian Le Mans series, especially if customer teams are receiving LMDH cars in a few seasons' time? I think by the time we get to into and beyond 2023, we're going to start to get a very good impression of just exactly where the current players in the customer market are. You know, we've got, uh, we mentioned it earlier in the show, WRT coming to the uh, WEC, uh, you know, big players in GT3 racing and customer racing there, DTM 
two. They're already targeting two cars for 2022. They're looking, they're making very clear it's all about uh, LMDH. The same with Phoenix Racing, who'll start in the Asia Le Mans series. They'll be coming, I'm sure, to the, the European Le Mans series as well. There will be others. It's going to be about those types of team and the established players like United Autosports, Jota, TDS, EDEC Sports, insert name of other team that's on the LMP2 grid somewhere, their ability to find, to source that additional percentage of budget to make the leap to the top class. If they can do that in sufficient numbers, then you've got a very interesting transition. There's all sorts of uh, opinions as to how that might affect it. I will bring you tearing back to what was almost a year ago, uh, the ELMS season opener at Paul Ricard and an interview we brought to Inside the Sports Car Paddock with Zach Brown. And Zach, one of Zach's points there was his view is it's distinctly possible if LMDH is as successful as we hope it's going to be, that that might very negatively affect the customer market in LMP2. And that we might eventually see is LMDH and LMP3. It's possible. We wait and see how that happens. But certainly I've heard people involved uh, both in the Asia Le Mans series and in the European Le Mans series uh, making you know, pretty guarded presumptions that in four or five years' time, those continental series might indeed well have LMDH. Whether or not they have LMH as well, I think is going to depend on where that marketplace goes. To, if, if we see a major... Um, boutique brand coming into Le Mans hypercar. If we see a Ferrari coming into Le Mans hypercar, and that is in any way an accessible level for customers, that's the point at which there's a fundamental shift. Why? Because if you're looking for the best-selling GT3 car on the planet, it's the one with the prancing horse on the front. Why? Because people have just got to have the biggest, baddest, best Ferrari on the planet. There we go. That's the end of the show. No, it's not. We got a lot more. Uh, Lawrence Kwai, second time asking this question. Uh, with the spec chassis and hybrid system for LMDH, also known as LMD Husky, in honor of Graham's beautiful dog, are the manufacturers able to select or adjust locations of the components to optimize the total system with the power plant? Uh, also, does the spec hybrid system include spec control systems and software? Or manufacturers able to use their own systems and software packages to integrate the various subsystems? Spec controls and software would seem to limit the manufacturer's ability to differentiate themselves from the other users, um, so on and so forth. I mean, this is, I guess, WEC ACO, but it's probably uh, maybe just as much IMSA. So do you want to answer that, Graham, or you want me to? I think there's two two parts of it. I'm sure you can add in some more bits and pieces. The the spec hybrid system is effectively a closed system. There's the interface with the internal combustion engine is the point of difference. The second point here is some parts of that are going to depend on the way in which the internal combustion engine setup needs to be accommodated. In other words, you're going to have a, a potentially vast uh, level of difference between some of those solutions. Uh, you know, we've already talked about, you know, what Audi and what Porsche's 
uh, options might be. You might well find that somebody wants to use a honking great V8 or V10. You might find that someone wants to use a relatively compact four-cylinder uh, with a mega turbo. You might find that someone else wants a larger engine with a turbo. So the packaging aspects, I think, are going to be key, and that might well have an impact on the placement of some of those components. But my understanding, MP, and please uh, fill in the gaps if I'm wrong here, is that the entire effective bolt-on hybrid system is a closed system. That is spec. Uh, the, the key differentiation is going to be at the point of contact between the two uh, motive power sources, and that comes with the electronic gizmos that link the two. It is a sealed box. That's the best way to think of it. They're spec everything. And I have heard zero about manufacturers having the latitude to do any customization, personalization, or otherwise. As for location, that's going to also be something that I know they will look to make as spec as possible. I, having not seen any LMDH designs, um, I would expect... Uh, that the rules do outline specific location uh, that must be used for the system. We know that uh, the mechanical side, the motor generator unit, will indeed be uh, sitting in the bell housing uh, that is directly behind the clutch. If you're looking from the motor looking backwards, it will be directly behind the motor uh, in the bell housing, which is the part of the car that actually connects the transmission to the engine sit inside of that well. Uh, so that's the spec location for making the electronic juice. Um, where the battery and electronics sit, again, having not seen it, I can only assume that one of the things that every chassis constructor will be required to do to put it in the same spot. Um, so that's what I believe we're going to end up with here. So yes, to just close this, Lawrence, yeah, uh, for manufacturers who want to demonstrate their awesome, amazing, electrified, uh, whatever, that would be LMH. For those who want to be able to tick the, hey, we're hybrid box, but it's really not an area that they can get into in any way, shape, or form, that would be LMDH. Uh, Trevor Gagola says, with Ben Keating coming to TF Sport to run the Aston Martin, well, that is good news. Uh, he says, is there any other news as to uh, what the other Aston Martin GTEs will be doing now that the factory is out of the pro class? Then says, with Aston announcing customer support being a priority, does this mean that they may reach Porsche and Ferrari levels of customer GTEMs in the future? Uh, well, I've got to catch up with uh, Tom Ferrier of TF Sport. We've, uh, what's happened since Trevor asked that question is we've had the WEC um, list, and we now know there are three uh, GTEs in the WEC. I can tell you I'm expecting at least one other to see competition. Uh, I can tell you also that the uh, cars that we've got this year do not include the TF Sport car that won Le Mans last year because that one will be in Sally Yullock's living room uh, because that's where that car is going. Uh, the other quick thing to add here, so first and foremost, I need to find out from Tom what those cars are. Are they X factory cars or are they upgraded GT3 cars? 
are, are they new build GTE cars? Because remember, the Aston Martin, in common with the Ferrari 488s, they are the two GTE uh, cars that can be engineered uh, to and from GT3 spec with pretty substantial work. It's a full body kit. I think in the case of the Aston Martin, it's a fuel cell and a completely different engine. Uh, so the basic chassis is the same, but there's a lot of, of uh, engineering that needs to come into it. So the answer there is, will they be targeting that? Well, they can try, is the straight answer. Uh, the reality is at the moment we have not um, managed to track down exactly who has got all 10 of those 2021 spec 911 RSRs. I've heard a couple of tales, one of which is that um, some of those potential sales were not completed. Why? Because it emerged that those cars were not going to be raced and Porsche want them raced. So at the moment, I'm at a level where I'm very confident I know where several of the 10 are going. And I have. And if you read my piece before the day we got the uh, the uh, WC entry list, you'll see a couple of the places I think that we might see uh, others as a, as a third team. So absolute racing, I think, might be looking at maybe whether or not they're going to get one. Uh, Hub Auto from Asia, they might also, they're a team that's had a 911 RSR before. Um, and there's a third team that at the moment tracking that uh, there may also be a potential customer for those cars. We're not going to see the European Le Mans series uh, entry list for some little time yet. So that'll be uh, after entries close at the end of February. Uh, but I'm expected to see a very healthy GTE uh, entry there. It's one of the reasons with the health of the GTM class and for that matter the LMS GTE class that you know, you've know you heard me repeatedly on the weekend sports cars say GTE certainly as a pro-am class is not going away anytime soon from the WEC and from the Le Mans 24 hours. Uh, yes I think that Aston Martin Racing Pro Drive will be targeting getting as much customer activity as they possibly can. Their main focus, though, my understanding is, is going to be on customer-supported factory supports for customer efforts in GT3 racing with a couple of big targets in 2021. I think one of those is very likely to be the Nürburgring 24 hours. Uh, I'll add one little bit of color here in terms of the um, – hi, Rocky – uh, uh, one little bit of colour here in terms of the scale of the ambition of that customer programme. Only one of last year's uh, factory drivers for Aston Martin, and there were a number of those factory drivers, only one of them is not under contract for 2021. And the only reason that driver isn't under contract is because that's Alex Lynn and he's gone to Formula E. Every other driver that drove for Aston Martin as a contracted factory driver, whether or not as a senior or a junior member of that team, was offered and has taken a contract from Aston Martin for 2021. And we've got to add into that, by the way, the other announcement this morning, which was the Aston Martin Young Driver Academy has appointed another guy to that roster. That is Valentin Hazeklot, French driver who will be making his debut as a de facto member of the factory team uh, in the Asia Le Mans series in a few weeks' time in Dubai. There we go. All right, we're moving on to George Allegretz. Hey, George, feels like it's been a little while. Says, hi, boys. Were you surprised at the, to me, very aggressive front arrow on the Toyota Groot? That's the GR010. Uh, seems like Toyota has laid down a big bet that the ACO will keep its word about 
not being highly prescriptive with the arrow rules. It, is that well? Let's see. We should also roll in a second one. Well, George's got the front. Steven's got the back. Stephen Gate says the new Toyota Groot has a much higher rear deck. That's known as the engine cover, by the way, Stephen. Uh, than its predecessor, reminiscent of the Nissan GTR LM Nismo. I have no idea what that is. That's clearly not the car's accurate name. It's, not, this, it's not good enough. No, no. Not good enough letters in it, no. Yes. Uh, is this due to the new regulations or a change in aero philosophy? It's the latter. Um, so, again, just to repeat, the key here is what they're allowed to, to achieve in terms of the overall numbers. So Toyota will have done that, I'm sure in concert with the technical people at the ACO. Uh, They've explained their philosophy and what they're trying to achieve. Remember, they cannot have a a low-drag body kit for them on, so they've got to have something that they think is the best option across a whole season, including Le Mans, which places very different um, challenges and opportunities for an aerodynamic system. So uh, whether or not we're talking about George at the front or Stephen at the back, the pantomime horse of twist questions, uh, the the answer here is the same, which is whatever the way in which that performance is delivered, the net result has got to be the same and has got to be within a window that allows that car to be uh, BOP'd. Talking to a couple of people over the last few weeks about you know just where we are with those um, those calculations. There's been an awful lot of back-to-back testing done, sim testing done, uh, with the cars that are in the mix at the moment, including the Glickenhaus. And some adjustments have been made as a result of that. But there's a long way to go. Consider all sorts of aspects of this, not just the aero, but things like what happens about tyres, performance of tyres, tyre life. It's going to be fundamentally different and therefore difficult to... Uh, balance that uh, between a hybrid hypercar with four-wheel drive and a car putting much more of its tractive efforts uh, just simply through the rear wheels. Think, too, about the kind of balancing the performance between a car that is capable of firing up instantly on electric power, which the Toyota has, and a car that isn't like the Glickenhaus. There is that half second, one second, one and a half seconds, when the car comes off the, tr- the jacks, even with a quick start system, that you might find has to be balanced out somewhere in regulation. There's a lot to be thought about here. There are some very big brains, both in the, um, the design offices uh, at Toyota and the other manufacturers involved, but also in the rulemakers' offices looking to, to try to see where those just tiny advantages uh, in one pit stop or on one lap that can add up to something significant over an hour, four hours, six hours, eight hours, 24 hours. That's the game at the moment. And that's before you look over the hill and the LMDH cavalry are coming. Uh, and that's a whole different ball game as, as well. We're not going to have seen those guys responsible for these processes work quite this hard ever before. I will say this, MP... They actually, eventually, after some years of struggle, nailed it with auto BOP. Nailed it with that. We got to the stage where the the, the story totally changed between IMSA that got it right and then got it wrong and the ACO that got it wrong and then got it right. Uh, I hope we get to the stage where that can be delivered. It's going to be a massive, massive task. Um, so we are into hashtag wait and see. 
All right. Uh, let's see. we got a couple more for you. We're going to go to Drew Wetzel. Marco Andretti. Can we answer that really quickly? We, um, yeah. So the answer, the answer Drew, who asks about Marco Andretti, any chance of him going to Glickenhaus? My understanding is we will hear the um, selected driver roster for Glickenhaus in the coming days, probably next week at some point, together with a sponsorship package for the Glickenhaus. Uh, I know both you and I have been party to that list, uh, and I can tell you Marco Andretti's not on it. That would be factual. All right, Jacob Bame, fourth attempt. I like that. He just opens with fourth attempt. Uh, is the ACO in any way tempted by any prospects of securing a deal with a video game company for producing Whack the Game? Says, I'm aware that IndyCar fans have been bombarding the series about such things for a long time now. No wonder is the ACO stance on that form, uh, on that form of marketing. Um, okay. In general, what do you think? Uh, should well, we be we- getting it? Well, the answer is um, it's sort of a surprise it's not happened. The problem, of course, is that you're not just dealing with the championships um, uh, branding. You're dealing with manufacturer branding. That that makes things an awful lot more difficult, depending on who decides they're going to take a piece of the pie. Uh, it, it, we've got a brand new management structure at LMEM uh, and with the ACO. So if there wasn't a tendency to do it in the past, my guess is that this is the point at which it might be considered again for two reasons. One, new people. Two, there is an absolute and abiding requirement and need for income. Uh, whatever else 2020 proved, it proved that you can spend an awful lot of money um, putting on a race series and big races like Le Mans if fans are not there. It has, by the way, here's good news for you, the fans. It's firmly reminded uh, championship organisers, race promoters, how important you, the fans, are uh, in terms of what you add to the coffers in coming trackside. So be aware, there might be some dark days ahead in terms of still not being allowed to come racing. Nobody has forgotten uh, what part you've got to play in the commercial puzzle that is a professional sport. Going to Kevin Kemp, perhaps we're looking at the possibility of the Toyota hypercar and the Lexus LMDH racing together the wrong way. Uh, might it be adventurous to bring the Lexus to Le Mans uh, in case the Toyotas get unfavorable BOP? In hashtag uh, his my personal opinion, it would make more sense to bring over an IMSA team with a Lexus LMDH and a different BOP than add a third car with the same BOP as done in the past. I never thought I, I about that one. Yeah, sort of get it. I can. I sort of get it. I think my, well, it could be very interesting the way in which the brands decide they're going to activate their investment in that brand. There's all sorts of possibilities. Think about this one, Kevin. Might we actually see uh, if they decide that they believe that there is a better uh, opportunity with the Toyota hypercar that the Lexus brand is represented with the third hypercar? Who knows? Philemon only. We've seen three cars before. That'd be an ideal way to do it, wouldn't it? To activate the US North American budget, uh, shove a Lexus badge on the front of it, paint it a different color. Bingo. The brand has got a third car. There are so many unknowns, but the best part of it is most of those unknowns are pretty exciting right now. I'm, you know, as we struggle through this awfulness that is a pandemic and pretty bleak days in some ways, I am genuinely excited by what is coming down the road at us. Uh, that's why I'm hanging on in there. 
you know, in what are not very good trading conditions at all for anybody trying to operate commercially in motorsport. That's why I'm hanging on in there. One, because I love it. Two, because I think there are much, much better days ahead. If I'm thinking like that, there are other people in motorsports and the automotive trade that are thinking the same. Because if they weren't, let's be blunt, this is tough enough that an awful lot of people have just packed up and gone away. And if you hear typing in the background, I am indeed writing a timely story as requested by Racer while we're conducting the show. Uh, Clement Rosin says, I have an ACO question this week. Toyota recently announced Kenta Yamashita will no longer be involved in their top flight hypercar program. He says, with Thomas Laurent also being dropped from the program in July of last year, marks the second young driver in less than a year to leave Toyota. Were these departures related to poor performance or is this due to downsizing, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, right, so I can, it's a two completely different answers. So let me tell you about young Kenta Yamashita, who is a sparkling talent. I will add here, by the way, that both Stephen Kilby and I got to know Kenta reasonably well. How and why? Because we were drafted in to help him with his English uh, during his season in the um, in the FIWC. At the end of every race, we would go along and interview him and report back to his uh, management how he was doing in terms of his conversational English and his more formal English. Uh, I found him an excellent individual. It has been entirely Kenta's choice for the moment to go back and focus his racing on uh, Japan, Super GT, Super Formula. So totally his decision to do it. My guess might be that might be kind of family reasons to do with the COVID pandemic. He certainly was doing very well in the WC. He was beginning to show that he was absolutely up there with it as one of the top talents. So that's Kenta. Put that one to one side. Thomas Laurent spoke to Thomas at length yesterday. Um, there will be an interview uh, to that effect on DSC once they stop throwing cars around the Daytona International Speedway. Um, and indeed, Thomas is looking for his next opportunity. What do I think? Uh, it may well have been that actually it was not Thomas's uh, performance. I think his performance we saw uh, both in the Rebellion P1 and at times in the Signatech P2 with that astonishing pass around the outside on Paul de Resta up through Radion, uh, Rouge Radion. Nothing wrong with his uh, bravery button and nothing wrong either uh, with his pace. Um, I suspect simply that they found somebody they thought could take them a bit further, and that somebody was Nick de Vries, who is an extraordinary young talent. So do I think it's a reflection of his his talent i don't i think they found somebody they thought could take that program a little bit further it's unfortunate for him because he is the living epitome of the ability for the aco's talent ladder to work started think a little cn car after winning a world championship in karting up through lmp3 lmp2 and lmp1 uh, I think the only driver so far to have made that journey, uh, although somebody I'm sure will correct me on social media. Uh, so I expect we will see him back. I expect we'll see him back in uh, LMP2 at some point this year, I would hope, at least in the LMS and hopefully in something in the WEC as well. Uh, to answer the unanswered question, no, I don't expect to see him in hypercar. I don't think, uh, well, I know he's not part of Alpine's uh, plans for the coming season but i wish the young man all the very best uh, luck in the world because he is a exceptional talent and an exceptional young fella um it was a it was a really 
positive 45 minutes of conversation, some of which was off the record, some of which you will be reading on the record on Daily Sports Car. Going to a couple of fist fist ones. Wow, that's painful. Fast ones. Damian Peachman, you hit us with three in a row. Why the change of series for Ricard Meal Racing and will be a all-female team in ELMS are the words that he typed. Right, so the answer is that I know they were making a decision. At one point, it was going back to LMS. They've opted to come to the WC. That's pretty exciting stuff. I think the girls in that car, it will be the same three ladies that uh, finished the season. Let's give uh, Vista, uh, Sophia Flesch, and Tatiana Calderon were beginning to come on a lot stronger. I think we'll see stronger performances from them this year. It's going to be a mountain to climb in WC. It's one hell of a grid of 11 cars in that I think we will see them in a few LMS races as well in that car. As for the second female crew, all-female crew, the Iron Dames, indeed, they too, in GTM, will be graduating after two really exceptional years in the LMS. At the moment, I'm still being briefed to expect that Iron Links will bring a second all-female crewed um, Ferrari 488 into the GTE class of the European Le Mans series. And I expect that class, by the way, to be at around or beyond double or into rather uh, double figures as well. Okay, we're going to Graham. How much carryover from the TS050 is their GR10 hypercar? Damien, uh, by the is- way, don't hesitate to do complete sentences in the future. <laughs> or I actually kind of like these because they're just they cryptic. Good? And, yeah. The answer is almost nothing is the straight answer. Uh, and, and the accompanying PR materials that were sent to us by the fine Mr. Alistair Moffat from uh, Toyota Gazoo Racing in Cologne. Um, we had some interview material from Pascal Vasselon. And the answer on that front is next to nothing was carried over between the two. Whilst there is certainly, it would be fair to say, there is a family resemblance at certain parts between those two cars, although radically different in terms of their aero uh, philosophy, as pointed out by a couple of questioners earlier. Next to nothing is carried over between the two cars. Completely different internal combustion effort. The hybrid drive is totally different. Uh, there are vast... The uh, first time, for instance, since they started in the LMP1 hybrid days with the new hybrid drive, that they've had a full hydraulic brake system on the rear of the car. So a hugely different car albeit one that because i suspect the color scheme is pretty similar um possibly from some angles looks uh, rather more similar to the tso 50 than it actually is final question from damien what are the chances by collars show up but with a lmp1 not a hypercar I suspect they've not endeared themselves to the WEC or the ACO is the straight answer. I think if they emerged with a hypercar, they'd be welcomed. I think at this point, if they emerged with LMP1, not so much. Uh, the uh, interview given to at least one correspondent that said that they were in dispute about the uh, entry fees, I believe that to be true. It's a straight answer, and the entry fees are certainly a substantial number this year, part of the ACO trying to recover some of the, the commercial ground lost um, in what was a very, very difficult um, 2020. But uh, are bicolors ready? The answer is no, they're not. If they were to come forward and say, pretty, pretty, please, Mr. Fion, could we bring our car to Spa 
and the Le Mans 24 hours, I think that might be quite an interesting question. And I think the question might be answered by just how competitive or otherwise the five-car field is going to be in Portimao. I think uh, Bicolis should be hoping that that's a field that needs some help, because if they put on a show, I think we might see the 24 hours of Le Mans without the Austrian team. Where do we go next, my friend? We are done. Let's, We're running let's way later on. than expected, and there is indeed an IMSA session uh, that is six minutes old, but we don't care. We're going to keep talking because we love you more than we love testing. Let's go through a Hi, Rocky. Of Rocky wants to be fed, by the way. You know it, what? Ain't let's, uh, I'll just have a quick look at what we got here. Why don't we pick three each from General, her General, and, uh, and whatever's in fun. So I'm going to pick the first one, which is Doug White says, Hey, MP, GG, long-time IndyCar, first-ish time sports car question. We've got a lot of those today. Yeah. What's the turnaround like for cars after the wear and tear and torture over 24 hours? Now I'm going to put into brackets there, uh, 24 hours, or indeed the 12 hours of Sebring. Do most of the parts mileage out? Is it a full tear down inspect? Do most teams have more than one car in rotation? And that's a part of that. Um, the answer is... For for instance, LMP2 team, there are you you buy the the uh, Gibson engines in packages of hours run, uh, so those engines will be rotated through. Some, but not all, teams in LMP2 have spare chassis. I can tell you, for instance, at the end of last season, uh, Jota, who are running two cars in uh, in WEC this year. They're running two cars in the Asia Le Mans series this year, and they are aiming to have a car in the European Le Mans series this year, but that isn't done as yet. They had seven Oreca Zero seven chassis available to them. Uh, there are other teams that have no spare chassis. Um, so the, it does differ depending on the availability of budget. I rocky again. Um, but uh, as for whether or not they're torn down, the answer is after a 24-hour race, boy, you tear it down. Um, you know, it, pretty much everything will be uh, inspected. Pretty much, my guess is a fair amount of it will be put away in the bin, saying "do not use." Um, what say you after the Rolex Twenty Four? Yeah, uh, it's just standard practice for full teardowns to happen after every race. The only time that does not happen, speaking in plainly duh, Pruitt terms is when they have races on back-to-back weekends. If we're talking prototypes, it is not nearly as hard to blow those cars apart, uh, inspect, and rebuild slash reassemble. GT car, far more uh, complex, just because the vehicles are never designed from the outset to be stripped down with ease. Um, So... Brakes are obviously going to be toast. I had one team owner tell me that the addition of the qualifying race this weekend mm-hmm. at the Rolex 24, I'm sorry, from the Roar before the 24. Now, I don't know if this is going to be a universal number or just theirs, but uh, what is going to be consumed on the car in brakes alone, carbon brakes, said the qualifying race has added $30,000 to their budget because wow. of having to basically burn up through the test, but also through the race, um, those breaks. And so, again, I can't tell you if that team owner was just grousing or if that's indeed something that a lot of others have just accepted as part of the cost to do things. But, um, yeah, so gearbox internals will be beaten up pretty heavily after 24 hours. So uh, you could look for... Um, 
having whether it's a second transaxle that's been completely prepared as a spare which would be normal for all teams uh if that is not needed during the race um you could easily say well then you would just swap out uh one transmission for the other uh but again that used and consumed gearbox will definitely need full servicing uh if not replacement of just about all the moving internals and seals brakes are a pretty common and obvious thing beyond that it's just a lot of the wear and tear items skids beneath the cars beneath the hashtag front nose um things that would have been beaten up uh going over curbs or making contact bodywork is again obvious thing uh, very few cars get to the end of a 24-hour race in pristine body form, so there's going to be carbon repair uh, paint. Not so much these days. It's more wrap, but you know, there's just going to be uh, body work and work done on bodies and liveries and presentation that will be required. After that, eh, you know, I don't know if there's a ton. Hydraulic systems are certainly going to get a big look through. Um, you know, you'll look through all the electronics as well, unplug everything, make sure everything's in good place, uh, good position, uh, good shape. I'm sorry, no chafing, no this, no that. So, yeah, cars are going to come into a race like the Rolex 24, just in a beautiful, nearly brand new state. Come into the roar, I should say. Immediately after the roar is over, the cars are going to get blown apart and everything inspected, everything confirmed as good and then go back together um the difference here just to close is rolex 24 and roar a very different thing this is indeed back-to-back events but there's no travel involved that's where right if you're having to leave and try and go either say to the shop for a day or two and then send the truck on to some other place far away don't have the time to go totally mental but in this case, the cars are going to sit idle for three. I mean, they're going to get started on this on Sunday. They're not going to just go home and come back Monday. They're going to crack every, you know, most teams will dive well into this. So when they come in Monday, uh, they're going to, you know, by the time the cars go back together, they're going to have a lot of time to inspect everything, make sure they're pretty. And then one more fun thing, Graham, on the WeatherTech level is after they're done with their final session on Friday, at uh, the Rolex 24, since they really don't do much that day, um, they kind of get torn back apart again. <laughs> and a final yep. inspection is done, and a final, well, all right, we are going to replace that with something new, a clutch or whatever it could be. So, um, But, yeah, there's a lot of time, money, effort, you name it, that goes into this stuff. You, you, you added, I'm going to add a couple of quick tales, quick tales on this one, because you mentioned something that just jogged my memory. That is the fact, uh, the, the issue about the cars being on the road. Now, remember, with a lot of the kind of the, the, uh, the international championships, there are very tight deadlines to get the freight out of those paddocks and on the road to the next race. And I'll give you two tales where that dramatically affected the workload for the teams. One was an Asian Le Mans series race uh, where we went from Shanghai. I seem to recall the cars were then freighted to get to the bend in Australia. Uh, generally speaking, you're talking about those containers need to be packed by certain time, either later that night or very early the following morning to meet the um, the freight deadlines. Uh, we had one BMW M6 GT3 had a bizarre accident and ended up on top of the barriers. 
uh, the next time the car, the, that, that car was put straight into its container with all the kit and caboodle, uh, the team opened up the container, took the car out. That was their first opportunity to tear down and inspect that car. It was a write-off. They went all the way to Australia and put everything back in the container and walked away. Uh, that's what they had to do. The other one I remember, and this was early days of uh, the Audi R18 e-tron Quattro, and I seem to recall we arrived, I think it was after Cota and going to Bahrain. That might be incorrect, but uh, it might have been Shanghai to Bahrain. Um, both cars, when they arrived in Bahrain, had significant damage to the chassis. They had a spare chassis and built up effectively a new e-tron quattro uh, from the ground up in the garage. And that involved all sorts of bizarreness. I seem to remember... Audi taking two of the hospitality suites at the the drag strip, which is on the back straight uh, at Bahrain, um, and turning the air conditioning down as cold as they possibly could uh, to condition some of the parts to make that build, as I remember it. But that was an extraordinary thing where they managed to repair one tub and replace the other. Uh, both cars rebuilt after having damaged them over the curbs at the previous race. Uh, so two completely new, effectively, the fact that completely new R18 e-tron quattros built within the uh, the garages of the circuit uh, in Bahrain. That's the kind of thing you can get into after not a 24-hour race, but a six-hour race. Yeah. So I'll share one other dumb uh, tale from my experience, and I caused it. And it's not a chassis replacement. It's just a lot of work uh, between events. Having been in charge of loading our transporter, which was a full-size, you know, semi-race hauler uh, back in the day, uh, put in all the parts, pieces, spares, boxes, you name it, then loaded the two or three Swift DB5 Sports 2000s, and... We're going from our home base of Sears Point, Sonoma, California, to a race. I think it was either IndyCar or IMSA support race at Portland. So 12-hour drive due north. Well, I was also not only in charge of putting the cars in the transporter gram, but strapping them down. Well, guess what happens when a monkey of a mechanic gets three cars in the trailer? and straps down two and a half of them. And those, I think two or I forget whether it was two or three, they're all in a row. Uh, one after the other, at least two of them were, well, I can tell you this. I was smart enough to put the front tie down straps on the last swift DB five that kept the back of the car and it's fiberglass composite long very complex tail from bashing into the the back hydraulic lift door but it didn't keep the front of the car the hashtag front nose from spending 12 hours going up hills and down hills and braking and stopping and going forward from impaling itself on the back of the beautiful swift in front of it yeah so hey Guess what happens when you get to Portland and you open up the back of the trailer and you go, oh, cool. Oh, well, huh. 
that's a little farther forward than I thought. And then you climb up and look inside and realize that, oh, so the tapered back of the car in front of the one I didn't fully tie down just fully impaled the nose uh, and destroyed that. But then the nose on the free-ranging car destroyed the uh, significant portion of the tail of the one in front of it. And so... I'm just going to throw out something you all might not have uh, picked up on the conclusion, so maybe I get the to give you the big reveal here. My boss was mad at me. Say oh, you never really? would have guessed that. Uh, oh, my gosh. I was everything other than killed. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, that was not a good day for me. And then, yeah, I believe this is the same event. So to top things off, the way the paddock was laid out and the way where we had parked in portland uh the portland layout is a bit of an odd one where you have an infield paddock that's where pro teams indycar imsa whatever they it involves driving through a little mini forest area going across the track and then parking in that paddock outside of that outside the final corner of the track is a much bigger paddock that is traditionally more the club racing or support series paddock so that's where we were well there's this trail as i mentioned that all the pro teams drive along and through to get to the infield and with where how we were parked these long aluminum ramps which i think i mentioned before in the show uh that we had to use to get the cars out well this is something that happened to stick out into that roadway a little bit and it prohibited the cars trying to get to the infield the teams trying to get to the infield from being able to do that So we're just trying to get our cars out. We'd get the ramps out of the way. Everything would be fine. The factory electromotive Nissan GTP team, well, they got tired of waiting in their big crew van with all their crew members on it. I don't know what that thing weighed. It probably weighed five or 6,000 pounds. They just said, screw it, after getting tired of honking at us, and then just drove across our aluminum ramps. Well... Uh, they looked more like a boomerang after they got done driving over them than being straight. So after nearly getting in a fist fight with them, uh, our crew chief came back and said, well, they're going to pay for fixing it. And we had, I forget what we did. We had to have somebody come out and cut them and re-weld them and you name it. So I can just tell you that when you screw up, uh, things tend to go even worse. And yeah, I started off with things being bad. And then when we saw that our long aluminum diamond plate ramps were bent like a, were they were just, it was the funniest damn thing I've seen in a while. It wasn't funny, but I couldn't help but laugh because it was like, all right, we've gone from bad to absurd and I, I'm not strong enough to throw these boomerangs. So there you go. Don't let me load your trailer. That's what I'm getting at here. All right. Uh, where do we go next? Um, uh, we're going to do a, a couple of really quick ones. Uh, Rishi Deshpande. Um, Damien Peach from both ask about uh, Jan Mardenborough and uh, his departure from the Nismo outfits at GT500 and Super GT. What next? Active search for what next for Jan. And if Jan's listening, my apologies. I should have caught up with him a couple of days ago. That's on my to-do list for the coming days. Hugely talented young man. Uh, I expect he will find gainful employment uh, back here in Europe. Uh, at some point, um, disappointing for him. I suspect it is politics rather than performance that led to that decision. In fact, I know it's politics rather than performance that led to that uh, decision. And I hope we can uh, all come together and find something for his supreme talent 
um, to show what he can do in at least a modern P2 car. There's a separate uh, question there, by the way, from Tegera38. Emerging trend of factory GT drivers, including the likes of Kelvin van der Linde, Nicky Team, Chris Meese, racing in P2s, views to securing LMDH programs. Are we expecting more GT drivers appearing in slightly unexpected places? Yes, we've seen one more actually emerge in the last couple of days with Mathieu Jamene rocking up at the RWR Eurasia uh, efforts for the Rolex 24 Hours. And I think there'll be more to come as we wrap through certainly things like the European Le Mans series for the 2021 season. I think we're going to see more and more of this happening. Yeah. What about one for yourself here? Dan, I like the Dan Rice one. Dan Rice here, the one for you, MP. Dan Rice's 10-year-old son wants to know how balance of performance is generated. Best I could tell him was you have cars that try really hard to go slow. If they go fast, the scrutiny is messed with your car. Probably closer to the truth than I think I am, right? How do the different series determine what changes occur, such as adding weight or reducing power? Yeah, it's a great one, Dan, and I'm I am going to take a second one because uh, yeah, I've been wait- didn't get to it last week, and it was sent in specific for me after this. Uh, actually, I'm going to add one more that I can answer quickly as well, all just because they're timely. Uh, it's an interesting. Yes, your son is smart, so not a surprise, Dan. You've demonstrated smartiness on the interwebs, as I have seen. Um, so balance performance, yes. So we have a target in most series for the kind of power and performance a series expects to see. I know you've asked a general question about BOP, so it's hard to say, it's hard to answer in specifics such as SRO will do things differently than IMSA, than WEC, than whatever else. But you have a situation where a racing series will look at the cars in whatever class where they use BOP and do their best today it's a different thing where they'll actually use simulation and and performance modeling computer-based stuff to say okay this is how we think we need to bring these different vehicle performance figures and capabilities in line and so i'm just stating generalisms here for your 10 year old if you have a vehicle that is making more power than another wouldn't be a surprise to see balance of performance applied to try and bring its power figure down to say what the class median happens to be. If you have one that is particularly slick aerodynamically and cuts through the air better than the others, wouldn't be a surprise if they, again, depending on the various tools, talk about weight, talk about maybe ride height or wing angle, some sort of something like that how many aerodynamic appendages can or can't be used to try and bring it in line with some of the others. Uh, weight, it's a, sorry, BOP police are going by here. Uh, weight's a pretty good tool to use for cars that seem to be just much better than the others. So compared to engine performance, you can add an air restrictor that will limit power, but depending on what type of motor it is, uh, could still be fairly stout in terms of torque production. So while that air greater amount of air restriction will certainly knock down its top speed a bit, limit its peak performance as well, it'll just start to run out of meaningful air it can stuff into the motor. 
it wouldn't necessarily starve the thing from producing torque, again, depending on the type of motor. So weight, though, is something where uh, that's something that hurts a car everywhere. Uh, some of the other tools, like I said, wing angles and such, and hey, you need to put more downforce on your car than another one. It's a little more situational in how it impacts a car throughout a lap. Uh, if we think of a short, slower road course, telling a team that they have to carry more downforce than the next, or uh, one manufacturer to carry more downforce than the other, they're probably not going to get a complaint <laughs> because on those short, twistier road courses, uh, downforce tends to be a thing that you love and will help you. But if you have any long straightaways, well, that's where you pay your penalty uh, in reduced performance. But again, it, it really uh, situational changes uh, to BOP can be affected. And then, like I said, weight, adding weight or removing weight tends to be a bit of a universal one. You take it off, it's going to help you everywhere. You add it, it's going to hurt you just about everywhere. So these are the considerations that are taken, Dan. Um, computer modeling, though, has really become something that has helped most series get much closer uh, to achieving BOP true balance compared to back in the day where it was uh, a hunch and a guess and a experience where you get close, but you never pretty much never hit the bullseye. So not saying we hit the bullseye today, but series are getting a lot closer. I'm uh, going to rattle off a couple other quick ones, brother, then we'll go to fun, I believe, since it's the only one left. Right Turn Lover says, now that there's a new federal government sworn in, I assume he refers to mine, which is expected uh, to have a different view on what are appropriate means to battle a pandemic. Would you expect any impact on large sporting events in the U.S.? No idea and no idea. Uh, If the new administration decides as such, then I will say yes. And if they do not decide, then I will say no. But I have not seen them decide anything, so I can't predict yay or nay what i can tell you graham which you may know and dear right turn lover you may know yesterday there was an executive order uh adding some new restrictions to international travel related to the good old united states and i need to find out from both imsa and indycar which i cover as well if they anticipate this could make it harder for our international brothers and sisters to come over and play race cars So have no answer on that. Just know that I need to ask it because it was just, I think it went through yesterday. Um, Here is the last one I'm going to answer. This comes from our pal Matt Anderson, a repost from last week. It says, Marshall, perhaps you can help me solve this mystery that's been confusing me for the last 30 plus years. Up until the mid-80s, the pit lane at Sears Point had the pit crews on the opposite side of where they currently are, which is the paddock side. They were stationed such that they were right between pit lane and the track. So all personnel and equipment had to cross pit lane to get to their pit box. There has to be a reason this was done as it has made absolutely no logical sense and has confounded me for years. It is a strange one, Graham. If we think of the, if we think of the Lamar pit lane, if you weren't aware and for our listeners who maybe weren't aware of the longstanding previous IMSA pit lane, uh, layout think of the Lamar pit lane and instead of teams walking out from their garage to service the cars 
they ran across to the trench, as I always called it at least, uh, the little mini island that houses timing stands and engineers and whatnot looking out onto the front straight. And in the way Sears Point was set up, team there is a much wider little island but teams did indeed run across or go across pit lane prior to a race obviously or a session or whatever and bring all of their equipment over the wall into that little trench or island and then service the cars from there so on an island between with their backs turned to the front straight at sears point while again you know whether it's refueling or whatever else uh diving over the wall to do it that way so just a very strange strange thing and i will also admit um i kind of wondered that myself back then but it's about normal to me because i worked there for so long it seemed odd but i also became accustomed to it so matt the quick answer to the question that i think might be vaguely correct i don't know it's that the paddock itself was not crazy wide. And I would say that had the space been taken then to try and set up pit lane in a normal fashion, uh, it might have chewed up and eaten into available paddock space too much. We know that since then, uh, the track has just said, all right, the hell with it. We're going to surrender some paddock space. And they've put garages in and it's now just kind of a normal walk right onto pit lane instead of day job island where you have to work. But at least for the original layout, um, I think it was just done to maximize paddock space. And you might also remember, Matt, that past the normal pit lane, there was actually a little secondary one uh, continuing down pit lane on the left, which I rarely if ever saw used. So anyways, it was bizarre. All right, brother, where do we go? Where do we go? Go. Well, just before we just move on to fun, I'm going to take two really quick ones. One from Lance Snyder. So it's great, and this one's for you. What's more difficult, navigating actual politics or sports car racing politics? Much the same. Happily in my career, there's not been too much of what I'm afraid my replacements in my previous career in government, um, I didn't get lied to very much. That would be the thing that uh, crosses the line and makes it difficult. If people are asking sensible questions and doing so in a kind of civil albeit you know sometimes brusque fashion not a problem um straightforwardness i think is is the the bit that makes the difference between being able to do it well and do it badly um i don't mind having information perhaps not given to me i'm less keen on having it hidden from me and i'm absolutely not keen on people lying to me uh it didn't tend to happen much in my day i'm hoping it doesn't tend to happen much nowadays uh, but that would be the point. You see a very different me. Don't do that very well. Brian Cohn says, what are your long-term thoughts on the effects of Brexit on the UK motorsports industry? Do you think teams, shops and so on might start looking to relocate in Europe? Are there countries, cities or racetracks looking to take advantage by offering their teams, shops, deals to move? Um, I think the answer there is time will tell and it won't be very much longer before we know whether or not there's major problems ahead. Uh, I, if I were some of the larger uh, organizations i'd certainly be looking to make alliances to give myself options if the ten, if there emerges being border issues we're already into the realms of uh, additional and significant paperwork being required to cross borders uh, you know into and out of our own country um it will be seen i can tell you right now and i, I don't know what 
our individual listeners' views are on the Brexit issue. I can tell you what mine are. I think it's completely bonkers, uh, an absolute shot in one foot, reload and shoot in the other foot. Uh, and yes, I think you might well find that some of those teams might be looking at what their contingency planning is in the future. That's the least fun part of where we are. Let's move to fun, though, MP, with just a handful of questions there to cover off. Um, what takes your mind there? I thought you said you had two questions, but did you get to both or was that just a, an, a no, uh, merging both. of both? Okay, okay. It was both. Gotcha. Uh, Tom Welfi, fourth try, fun category. What are some of your favorite announcements of entries that did not materialize? <laughs> um, look, sure. uh, S-H-A-W, it, sure. well, I would say anything involving, uh, Ian Dawson. That's always like, That's isn't there a Transformers LMP two or three? That should be two. Yes. Well, what do they say about Transformers? They're robots in disguise. Maybe yep. it's been running the whole time, and we just haven't seen it. It's on the dark side of the moon, mate. That's what it is. Right, so yeah. I don't know if that qualifies, Tom. How about one for you, Graham? Suboptimus Prime. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going <laughs> to go for... Some of my favourite announcements. So many entries that didn't materialise. Oh, what about the, what the, about the Pamela Anderson pa, um, Celine? Remember that one? No, I don't. Or was it Olivia Olivia Newton John? Or was it both? It could have been. There was some utter nonsense. Some you know, dramatic fraudster in the, uh, that it was going to be a Celine S7R, and there was some kind of link between Pamela Anderson and. Olivia Newton-John. It sounds like a bad joke, but it was actually a series of announcements. Uh, someone will fill in the gaps, but there was that one which just became completely ridiculous. I'm forgetting uh, his name, but it's like the cousin of yes. Olivia Newton-John, and I forget yes. his name. He And so he and I had some fun back and forth over the years. Um, I believe, to say something positive about whatever his name is, that yes. there was some genuine, actual charity fundraising that took place, and okay. some good was done. Um, good. Well if, done. If there's an award for trying way too damn hard to try and bring the shine of a relative, distant relative, who did something totally unrelated to racing a really long time ago and has been kind of sort of forgotten and it isn't really spoken about anymore and trying to borrow that distant relatives cachet that's almost completely expired to get yourself some form of advancement or shine in motor racing i would love for someone to type that out by the way because i will try and make that award uh it would go Absolutely. to whatever this guy's name is whose last name was olivia newton olivia newton john or something like that it's, a, it's a nearly nearly as as kind of uh, long distance as betty white's niece in uh in uh in nhra drag racing that'd be quite fun wouldn't it something along those lines uh but look, there's been so many <laughs> there have been so many they come they go uh, sometimes I don't even bother to come. Um, Jean Wojnar says, all right, Goodwin, almost time for the 24. Any new news on Oscars? Le Mans, Daytona Husky ride coming up. Perhaps a try. Oh, God, we're into puns nah, here. The, the drive with Wayne Tail uh, Racing or D.O.G. Miller. What about Paul's de Team Yurst? 
Oh, dear, oh dear. Actually, is, I think, the de facto leader of the Prude sub-listener yes. group, so no. he should be deposed. No, he, he, uh, they're all wrong. The reason I've not been referring to Oscar uh, today during the show, he's actually on a Qantas plane at the moment on the way down to Australia, where he's hoping to be admitted in the manner of a uh, Australian Open tennis player. And after two weeks with a hotel room of snacks, he's going to take up his drive with the uh, one of the leading teams in the absolutely fantastic V8 Super Malayute um, Championships. Sorry, bad. We uh, we actually expect people to listen to this garbage we generate. <laughs> now that is fun. Um, all right, Cody Oakwood. Uh, should we tell folks that our hey, it's towards the end of the show. Few people are listening. Should we tell folks that uh, the fine Cody Ware, who likes doing some sports car racing, is, is expected to become a limited part-time NTT IndyCar series driver next year. Nah, we wouldn't reveal such a thing at the end of a sports car show. Um, I just say that. No one's supposed to know. No, I just say that because Cody Oakwood, your first name reminded me of that. It says MP, since you alluded to, alluded to Graham's sexiness, I thought I just outright said it. Uh, since you alluded to Graham's sexiness in the call for questions, which sports car current or historical adequately represents Graham's level of sexy? Well, you mentioned level, so would it be an Acura HPD LMP2 car, say, on the level of five, possibly? Um, I would say, What's, yeah, yeah, that, that's where we need to go, for sure. Well, I mean, um, it's, it's probably it's kind of the, the Cadillac paint scheme, the kind of off-gray, that, that's, that's sort of there. Something that's overweight, really. Well, that's uh, that would be to... me. No, that that that's not you at all. Can you take the next one from Dan Rice because a it's awesome and it has names that you know I would just murder the entire time. Fantastic. How do we get AJ Allmendinger to say the full name of Ferdinand Habsburg during Daytona? He wants to hear the man who gave us Ringer van der Zander take a shot at Ferdinand's. Uh, let me get this right: Zvonimir, Maria Malchus, Keith, Michael, Otto, Antal, Banham, Leonard von Habsburg, Lothringen. Bonus points if we can get Lee Diffy to say it, just because I want to hear that string of names in Australian. Oh, this is How so. Do you get to do it? Yeah, I know. I, I know Lee. I'll, I'm actually going to send him. I'm going to text this Dan. Send it. Send it. Send to, it to, uh, yeah. to AJ, and hopefully he can have someone read it to him because he's not too good with uh, his words. Um, I will tell you, by the way, a, a great story because Ferdinand, you may or may not remember, was not on the entry list until today. I did remember, uh, and I also saw that he went top three fast too. He did. He's very in the fa- first he's session. Very fa- so. I can tell you exclusively why that was the case. And with absolute apologies to Ferdinand, you can blame Jamie Campbell-Walter, who manages Ferdinand, for this information getting into my ears. Uh, so uh, in, uh, the, there was a license problem. So the, the problem about licensing for Ferdinand. And it was, I'm afraid, an attention to detail problem from Ferdinand because when the files were sent into the IMSA officials who need to examine those to make sure these qualified to uh, take part in the race what he'd photocopied was the cover of his license and not the details yeah that's a good one uh, well done. 
but none. Let's see. Two to go, and I think they're kind of for me. Don Gregory, if you could pick one temporary road circuit that IMSA used to race on and bring back to the current schedule, which one would it, would it be? He says, for me, it's Del Mar for the fantastic weather and atmosphere. If you're talking specifically IMSA, not American Le Mans series, uh, then, yeah, I'd probably go with you on Del Mar. I loved it. It was amazing, and I guess I'm revealing my age having – being at Del Mar, granted, part of the support series uh, for IMSA's old GTP races there. But, yeah, that was pretty awesome. Uh, saw the debut. I still can't find the vi- the home VHS videotape I shot of it. But the uh, – the actually, it wasn't the debut. But the Ferrari France entry being driven that weekend by Jean-Pierre Jabouy. Yes, all the GTU and GTO cars were housed inside of uh, – I forget. I think it was a parking garage or something like that. Uh, But yeah, beautiful. Love that place. Great choice. Uh, If we talk Alms, I would say Baltimore. I'll always say Baltimore. Uh, The last one here from Jerry Robert Suddeth. Do you want to throw at me so it doesn't sound like a... I will. Yeah. No, that's fine. It's It's a request from Jerry rather than a question, he says. But Marshall recently mentioned you have a hankering, he says, to help out with the crew. When this happens, can we get an article about the experience? He'd love to see a comparison between now and how teams ran when Marshall allegedly worked as an engineer. Well, I will do my absolute best. The Yeah, so I have had a desire to just do my old normal pit crew stuff again because I haven't done it in 11 years now. This is the start of the wow. 11th. My last time was, well, no, I think I'm wrong on my whatever last time i put my hands on a motor racing vehicle and ran one was december of 2010 it was a yes a brutally expensive subaru wrx sti that someone had built by former world challenge champions 3r racing in colorado and uh yeah that it was fun and cool and all that but yeah it's been a while so i look forward to just doing that again and i don't care i mean how's this the position or title doesn't matter to me for that's nothing to do with anything i don't need to be the crew chief on whatever i just love playing with race cars and haven't done it and that passion had been gone for a long time so now i just want to go do it so whether a buddy with their formula ford or a prototype my buddy bobby green who uh looks after a number of amazing cars audi r8 element or geez lmp 900s and such uh looks after a old group 44 jag xjr7 imsa gtp car and so he said hey if you want to come out let me know and i'm like yes i do um that'll make a great feature sherry's right it'll make a great feature i think so i mean and granted not because i'm doing it just because like i don't know uh you don't get to hear too many stories about uh people working on racing cars too much so Mm -hmm. i will try and do that uh for sure jerry and thank you for asking just throwing one little thing here which is a consideration Doing that on a vintage race weekend or club racing weekend, not a problem. The writing about it, covering it, and again, not while it happens, but afterwards. Doing it with a pro team, which I would also, frankly, kind of like to do that too, you know, in, in whatever. I mean, it's what I used to do, so I wouldn't mind mm-hmm. being on a, you know, if, if I can do that on a race weekend where either I'm not reporting or if the schedules allow, I'll help pull tires over the wall or do something, whatever. Uh, wouldn't mind doing that, but that dynamic's a little bit different. And I get requests every now and then, Graham, 
from listeners or readers who say, hey, would really love to see you have more mechanics and crew chiefs on or write about them more often. And I share in that interest. What I get more often than not is that request being declined. And it's different than when I make that request of a driver, race engineer, team manager, team owner. And it's just because there's a different kind of ethos. There's a different approach on the mechanical slash crew side. And that is, hey, we are the soldiers. We are the service providers here. We're meant to be one and bonded as a tight-knit crew. So having one, even if they are the crew chief and technically and literally the person in charge of that crew, you'll see a lot of them aren't really too keen about being interviewed, being elevated or promoted in a story or on a podcast because they stand out from the ranks. And so that's the only, and I'm just sharing, I don't know if it means anything, but that's the only area where that would probably not work so much. Because if I were to, that's the Indy 500, the Rolex 24, the whatever, to just do something like I used to, being the guy standing out, look at me, put the spotlight on me, and I'm going to write about me, 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 what I did, (sighs) that would actually be a pretty bad fit uh, with everyone else because in that scenario, what I do is absolutely no more important than what anyone else is doing in a group all contributing to the same outcome. It's different than someone holding a microphone. Look, it's you. You're supposed to talk. The spotlight is on you. But in that dynamic, it's frowned upon. And I've had crew chiefs tell me that directly because I've said, hey, man, would love to. He's like, thanks, not a chance. The last thing I want to do is give my crew, especially the young ones who are learning, uh, the last thing I want them to do is to look at me and say, oh, look at him. Oh, he sure found a camera. He sure found, uh-huh. you know, a microphone. And, oh, okay, cool. Well, I can be, I can stand out and be perceived as bigger or better than the group. Nope. So just it's not probably too different than any other uh, scenario where you have a group responsible for something instead of individuals. I, I get the same experience this side as well. I've had exactly that experience with a number of guys. In, in fact, in one case where we did do a piece about that one guy, uh, not only did he get grief from with his own team, but uh, but also from other teams, and I got mail about it. Um, you know, why are you featuring this guy, not this guy? Blah blah. Yeah, yeah it's it's a it's a very different dynamic. I think we're at the end of the show, MP, with cars hopefully still on track for the IMSA uh, Free Practice 2, if that's what it's called. Uh, I hope everybody enjoys the raw test. I hope the qualifying race goes well. I hope you have a great time with the festivities down at Daytona International Speedway for what is a week and a half of fun and games on track. There is a lot more news to come as we've trailed in the weekend sports cars in what's been already a very busy news cycle since Christmas and frankly before that too Uh, stick with us on the weekend sports cars as we move forward with this for now we're going to say goodbye for this edition with thanks again to Cooper Tyres with thanks to Justice Brothers and to TorontoMotorsports.com I over here in the UK have been Graham Goodwin he over there in the US has been Marshall Pruitt we'll join you next week